another double at Misano, Jonathan Ray ensures that at least one world championship will be coming home. To British shores, at least. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 68 of Bike Live, uh, and it's very somber. Lewis Sutterby welcoming you to this week's edition of the podcast here on uh, Motorsport 101 as we uh, try to uh, summon up the energy to uh, be positive about things, given what happened uh, in Moscow last night as we record this. This is Thursday, July the 12th. Football is not coming home just yet anyway. Um, but we're still here for another weekly edition of Bike Live, and what a lot we have to talk to you about because it was a double header of superbikes last weekend. Uh, as Jonathan Ray did what Jonathan Ray does best, and that is win, and win twice uh, at Mizano last weekend. We will talk all about how he did it as he took another step towards yet another world championship, his fourth in a row. Um, we'll also talk about the other big stories that emerged from Mizano last weekend. Chaz Davies losing more vital ground in the championship. Eugene Laverty and Michael van der Mark putting in standout displays to put their manufacturers back on the rostrum uh, again. Uh, a turn up for the books in some respects in World Supersport as a new winner added his name to the list of winners in the championship this year. Um, a brand new winner, a wildcard winner in Supersport 300 as the championship closed up behind him. Um, and we'll talk about all the action from Knock Hill last weekend as the British Superbike Championship hit Scotland and Jake Dixon won again um, his third career win and they've all come uh, north of the border. We'll also talk about Leon Haslam extending his lead. Danny Buchan perhaps turning himself into a star in the British Superbike Series uh, with his double washroom and all the other issues to emanate from there. We will also preview this weekend's German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring. It may well be the last to take place at that particular circuit. More on that later on uh, as Mark Marquez goes for yet another victory um, at the Saxon Ring. But there's been huge news to break from that circuit on this very day that we record this, which we will be opening up with uh, at the start of this podcast. And joining me to talk about all of that and much more once again is Andre Harrison. Welcome, Dre. It's not coming home, people. And it must, this makes me very miserable inside. Um, well, the bronze medal Christ. might be, but we'll see. Did that, isn't that the most British thing ever, though, to yeah. be optimistic about getting the bronze medal? Like, is this the Olympics all over again? It's like, hey, we got a bronze! Yay! We'll take it! <laughs> All right! It, it reminds me of London 2012 when Daly got the bronze and the entire British diving team jumped in the pool together celebrating like, they, like they'd just been christened or something. It was amazing. But, uh, hey, it's, it's, it's not coming home. But, hey, um, you know, we had a, we had a good weekend of superbike, ac superbike action. And, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get into it. It was, it was a fun weekend indeed. It was a fun weekend. We'll get into that in uh, just a moment. Um, but first of all, let's uh, get into the places where you can find us and get in touch with us, um, which uh, which are important, actually, because we are putting together, uh, or the wheels have been set in motion for next week's episode 150 uh, of Monospot 101, mm. and we still welcome your ideas uh, for some of your favourite moments um, from the podcast's history. Um, Facebook.com forward slash Monospot 101 is the first place to go. Make sure you like us on there. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Monospot underscore 101. Um, and tweet us your thoughts uh, as, as opposed to next week's uh, 150th episode uh, of M101 on YouTube youtube.com forward slash monospot101 our weekly show highlights will be returning there very very soon um, so keep an eye out on that um, our website is monospot101.com uh, where you can find uh, all of our weekly podcasts and uh, much more written content too um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially as many people have been um, over the last week or so um, patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 
Um, $5 backing earns you early access to both of our weekly podcasts. You get the podcast a day before anybody else. Um, if you back us at the $10 level, you also earn access to our Discord server, um, which earns you the opportunity to listen to these podcasts live as they are recorded and get some of the inside stories that never make the air. Um, it's worth pointing out, though, Dre, again, because we, po- we mentioned it on M101 earlier this week, the uh, podcast uh, episode 149, which will already be out. We'll talk about it in a second. But um, there has been a bit of a Patreon boom this week, which um, I think we're all left a little bit baffled by. Yeah, like, what the hell are you people doing? <laughs> like, what, like, haven't you got better Thanks, things? guys, nonetheless. But, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, like, Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, like, we, we, we gained, like, 30 bucks worth of Patreon back in a week, which, which is, by a country mile, the, the biggest gains we've ever made outside of going to the gym that uh, is, is is entirely possible. So, uh, again, shout-outs again to Andrew Kissinger. He's back backing us again, black and mild, um, as well as Stephen Ryan as well, who all backed us at a $10 level in this past week. Um, thank you very much, you guys. That We now have more Patreon backers in total than we ever have before at 23 um, as well as the highest monthly total we've ever had as well at over 135 bucks a month now, which is crazy, which means we'll be giving away T-shirts once a month now, which is crazy. So um, uh, more on that, obviously, later on in the month of July. I think I'll start in a couple of weeks' time on that. But again, thank you so much for all your Patreon back in. It's incredibly generous of you. And trust me, it, it's, it helps out a lot more than you realize. Um, so thank you all so much for that. Um, it certainly caught me off guard, that's for sure. I wake, I wake, I wake up and I see two ten dollar backing emails. I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" It was, it was ridiculous. It is, and uh, we thank you all for your continued support. Uh, as as Dre mentioned, uh, t-shirt giveaways coming very soon, and uh, podcast highlights on YouTube. We are doing our level best to uh, make your Patreon support uh, well worth mm. your investment. Um, as we mentioned, episode 149 of Monosport 101 went live. Um, well, we don't know when this is going live, but by the time you're hearing this, you will possibly heard episode 149. And if you haven't, um, Dre, let's tell them what they can look forward to. Because um, hey, it has to be said, from your point of view, um, given your motorsport allegiances, both in Formula 1 and IndyCar, if you were going to map out a perfect motorsport weekend, it would have probably panned out a little bit like that. Just a little bit. Yeah, it, 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 let's just say it's named Five Squared for a reason. Um, episode 149 will most likely be out by the time you listen to this. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm not even going to beat around the bush and, and um, hype it up in my usual way. I, I said it on Twitter and I'll say it here. I think it's one of the best episodes you've ever done. I, I genuinely think that uh, um, I, I really enjoyed this one. You know, like, you know when you've recorded a good one, having done, I think, over 135 of these shows now on, on M101 alone. But um, you know when you've had a good one and this was a good one. Um, all the talk from the British Grand Prix, Sebastian Vettel's uh, su- like semi-surprising victory i suppose um lewis hamilton's ridiculous journey down and then back up through the grid after his collision with kimmy Räikkönen, and um a fantastic fight at the end of that race with valtteri bottas involved as well as mercs basically went all in to try and get the victory and well didn't quite get there again yeah, I, 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 but, I, I, I had to chip in on that by the way because i you know, i had a rare sunday off so i was actually able to watch uh, the grand prix live it's the first formula one race i think i've watched live since melbourne um, wow. um uh, at the start of the season maybe china because obviously all the others clashed with my sunday work shift um mm. and i have to say the final 10 11 laps of the formula one uh grand prix on sunday after the final safety car came in um was about as much as i've enjoyed the finish to a formula one race for a long long time 
Yeah, I, I always said it. It's it's the best finisher in F1 race I've seen since probably Austria a couple of but years a ago. Four-way fight for a Grand Prix victory. Yeah, like Raikkonen was having a go at Hamilton. Sebastian obviously it took several attempts to finally get pound get get round a you know a, a tire riddled Bottas. Who again, Mercs were Mercs openly admitted after the race they were going all in for the victory, and he knew that was the only way they were going to win the race. So. They had to try it basically with one of their cars, and and it was it was Valtteri that uh, sadly was the unfortunate victim of you know a, a, a minor Merck strategic call. Um, but yeah, like if you've seen if I've seen the last ten laps of that race yet, um, it's a magnificent finish and basically the dream scenario if you've been an F1 hybrid fan over the last four or five years, just seeing four guys from two different teams beat the piss out of each other to try and win a Grand Prix. It's a, it's a beautiful sight. Um, all of that, all of the drama regarding Lewis Hamilton afterwards, as well as Formula 2, is uh, Santino Ferrucci may have lost his mind. You've probably seen the stories regarding that over the mm. course of this past week in, in terms of his conduct on and off the track um, with Santino. As well as us, a, a live reaction to finding out that the news that he was trying to have a Make America Great Again livery was actually confirmed true by friend of the show, Luke Smith. So um, there's a live reaction to that in the middle of the show later on. Um, so if you haven't checked that out already, please do. It's 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 a very important discussion. Let's just say Mr. O'Connell went off quite deeply on that one, given his American allegiances. It's well worth the listen. As well as IndyCar's Iowa Corn 300, as James Hinchcliffe shocked everybody by winning from 12th on the grid. Um, as well as that, the controversial finish is Ed Carpenter may or may not have deliberately spun out to bring out a caution. Yeah, somehow he didn't get buried for it. Don't ask me how. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very weird one. Um, but uh, yeah, to say the least, um, a, a a fun race in Iowa indeed, and obviously a, our, our, our dearly our dear friend Zoe Hamilton talking about the passing of arguably the most important Andretti member of them all, Deanne Andretti, passing away this past week. Um, some important words said on that as well genuinely think episode 149 is a really great episode so i, I of course i would say that on the sister show but genuinely this is a really good episode and i think you'll really enjoy it so it, it um episode 149 almost certainly will be up so listen to that as well if you haven't already i genuinely recommend it it's a great episode yeah do check it out uh, episode 149 of m101 is live right now um right then let's uh, get into uh, this week's edition of bike live episode 68 um, and we're going to start with the news. We normally start with the racing that takes place last weekend, but two huge news stories have broken um, since we last spoke to you that have kind of overtaken that. Um, both both sad uh, in their own different ways, and we're going to start with the, the saddest of them all, the, the tragic news um, that broke at the Scaries 100 road races last Saturday, um, literally the day after we, um, we published uh, episode 67, um, that William Dunlop um, lost his life um, in a practice accident at the Scaries 100. Um, it's an accident that's currently under investigation, so the details of it are still being put together, and obviously um, we don't want to assume anything, but the details are these uh, at the moment, um, as, as printed in MCN, um, that uh, Dunlop's R1, according to witnesses, bottomed out uh, in a depression at the high-speed Sam's Tunnel section of the, uh, of the Scaries 100 circuit. Um, ripping the sump plug from his engine, oil sprayed onto his rear tyre, um, and he lost control as a result um, of that. The session was red flagged as medics obviously rushed to his aid, um, but obviously William Dunlop, a younger brother, uh, older brother, should I say, of Michael, um, 
was unable to survive um, those injuries. Um, racing did continue uh, on the Sunday, um, as is as is the sort of the done thing really in road racing. They continue as a mark of respect and, and continue with their racing. Racing took place on Sunday. Michael Dunlop did not take part in it for obvious reasons, but all prize money um, from the races on Sunday were donated to Williams' family, um, which I think was a lovely touch. Um, wow! But but a, but a tragic a tragic piece of news. There's there there is no good way of dressing it up, and there's never any kind of positive that you can pull out of this when any road racer dies. Um, it, it's a tragic story, whether they are popular, whether they are successful, whether they are talented or not. It is a tragic piece of news um, to have to bring you. But but William Dunlop was a hugely popular guy, a, a very naturally talented rider. Um, of course, he's had success right throughout the road racing scene. Um, and you know when you just look at his his role of honour, the success that he's had over his career, um, it, it is brilliant. Seven wins at the Ulster Grand Prix. Um, the last of which came in 2013. Four wins at the Northwest 200 um, as well. The last of which came in the Superbike race in 2014. Four podiums at the Isle of Man TT as well, um, including a second place in the TT Zero just two years ago. Um, but he, above all else, a hugely popular uh, individual, a member of a family that had road racing in its blood um, with his brother Michael, with, with Joey Dunlop, who is still one of the greatest riders in the history uh, of road racing. Um, and the entire road racing community has come together as one to pay its respects to William Dunlop um, with the likes of uh, Ryan Farquhar, a rider who he's um, had a rival with in the past, saying that um, he didn't always see eye to eye with William, but he always had the utmost respect for him. Uh, our lives were the same, he said, with everything based around road racing. It was his life, um, and unfortunately... Um, it has taken his life. Philip Neal, who uh, was his boss for a long time with the Tyco BMW squad, um, another team that is steeped in road racing, says that William was such a talented, smooth and calculated rider. We enjoyed some great times together and everyone at Taz Racing will cherish those memories. Motorcycling aside, if I had to use one word to describe William, it would simply be gentleman. Um, he is a, a man and a rider who will be much missed, not just in road racing, not just in British motorcycle racing, but in motorcycle racing as a whole. Um, we will all miss William Dunlop, who tragically passed away last weekend. Uh, the Scaries road races and our thoughts go out to his family and friends. Now, earlier today, as we recalled this on Thursday, July the 12th, uh, another huge piece of news broke. Um, this one came from the MotoGP paddock, um, and it's uh, another piece of news that is sad in its own way, of course, not on the same scale um, as the news we've just discussed with you. Um, but it is uh, a piece of news that marks the end of an era. Danny Pedrosa has announced his retirement um, from motorcycle racing um, with effects for the end of this year. Um, and first of all, Dre, um, before we discuss Danny Pedrosa's career and discuss what we think about, about this news, did it take you by surprise as much as it did me? Because it seemed the way the wind was blowing, the way the rumours were swirling over the last two weeks, that... This Patronus Yamaha team, which we know is happening, it was announced last week when it was uh, it was confirmed last week that this is definitely happening and that they're taking Aspar's spot on the grid. I think many of us, myself included, assumed well, Danny Pedrosa's riding for them. Um, so right. did this take you by surprise today that Danny Pedrosa wasn't announcing a, a ride with Patronus Yamaha today at Saxon Ring? He was announcing his retirement. Yeah, I mean, the way it was going, 
I I always felt like he was going to this Patronus Yamaha team, just, you know, just to see like as, as the final chapter of his career, just to see him on a black that wasn't the Honda, just to see if if what many people have said over the years about Danny was true about his ability and that he would be a much better fit for for the Yamaha style of bike compared to the Honda, which has become more of a Casey Stoner esque sort of only Marquez can really maximise the potential of this thing. Um. I always thought that curiosity might get the better of him, and it turns out it didn't really. It turns out that uh, no, he's. Uh, um, I'm hearing a lot of talk from the media that said basically the the, the the Danny's basically lost a lot of his passion for 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 racing in general. His motivations have changed in life, and that's uh, he wants to be a bit more of a family man. Which, given he's 33 in September, totally makes sense. He's been riding pretty much nonstop from the time he was 15 years old. Um, he's this is his 18th season being backed by Repsol Honda, which is incredible to to say the least. Um, so yeah, clearly his aspirations and motivations in life have changed, and um, that was a genuine surprise to me. I felt like he was going to Yamaha, and I thought was, he was going to spearhead this new team. And uh, no, he's he's going the complete opposite way. He, he's he's hanging up the gloves, which. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit sad by it because I, I genuinely was surprised. I didn't, I didn't think he'd actually be doing this just yet. But uh, no, um, the guy's clearly ready to move on with his life, and you know, more power to him. Mm, yeah, to uh, just to uh, give you the full uh, transcript, not the full transcript because it was a long press conference, but the uh, the general transcripts of Danny Pedrosa's announcement and his reasonings for it. Um, he says, next year I won't compete in the championship. I'll finish my career in MotoGP this season. It is, just, it, it is a decision I've thought about for a long time, and it's a hard decision because this is a sport I love. Um, but despite having good opportunities to keep racing, obviously a, a reference to this Patronus Yamaha team, I feel like I don't live racing with the same intensity as before, and I now have different priorities in my life. I would like to express how fortunate I feel to have had this experience and these opportunities in my life. It's been an amazing life to have. Uh, been racing for such an important team and in front of all the fans. I achieved way more than I expected and I'm very, very proud of what I've done in the sport. I fulfilled my dream of becoming a racer and that's something that I didn't expect when I was a kid watching TV, watching Riders in the World Championship. I would like to take this time to say thanks to Dawn and to Honda for giving me this opportunity way back in 1999 and to all my sponsors who backed me through my career. I would also like to say thanks to my family and to all the fans who supported me throughout my career and helped me through thick and thin. Uh, Zara Daniela being the one that perhaps we know the best, um, who helped bit. me sending so many messages. Again, we're referring to her there uh, to overcome <laughs> difficult things um, in the past. Um, and um, he's also, as a result of this, this was announced today by Donna. He's going to be inducted into what is essentially their Hall of Fame, the MotoGP Legends, um, at the end of this year. Um, and some who perhaps are more cynical, some who. And I'm playing devil's advocate here to a huge extent because I don't believe this at all. Um, those who argue with Julian Ryder, particularly on Twitter, and claim that Danny Pedrosa isn't the, the rider that, that many claim him to be and have been calling for him to be replaced at Repsol Honda for several years now, um, they may be asking, is Danny Pedrosa a MotoGP legend? But Dre, surely any rider um, who, across his Grand Prix career, can boast 54 Grand Prix victories across all right. classes, a double 250 champion, a 125 champion, um, and 31 career victories in MotoGP, including one at least one victory in 11 consecutive seasons. How can that not be a MotoGP legend? Yeah, I mean, 
it would take one analytical mind to look at MotoGP's Hall of Fame, and if you're shutting the emotional side of your brain off, you can tell that there's people in there with far less attractive resumes than Danny Pedrosa. And I don't want to, you know, say these people's names in vain, but Marco Simoncelli and Nicky Hayden are probably two guys that, if you looked at their overall career weight compared to Pedrosa, from a purely statistical standpoint, Pedrosa's legacy is better than I think those two. I think Pedrosa is the greatest um, MotoGP legend that has not won a Premier Class title. Um, and then again, no comparison. Randy Mamola's in the Hall of Fame now, and Pedrosa's career statistics I think are a little bit better than Randy's like I said like like you said you summed it up just as well as I could right now but Pedrosa absolutely qualifies for a MotoGP Hall of Fame spot from where I'm sitting his his resume has been incredible he's been a model of consistency he has been a a real face of the you know before we got this explosion of Spanish talents the guy that led the charge into this into this era of Spanish dominance we're seeing now was Danny Pedrosa. Jorge Lorenzo very quickly came afterwards to, to basically double that up. But if you want to track the rise of Spain in MotoGP, you start with Danny Pedrosa. Um, him winning three world titles um, in the independent and in, in lightweight categories um, and intermediate categories as well before coming into the top flight, winning immediately and immediately challenging for a championship. He was a contender until that penultimate round in, in Estoril, and we, we all know how that ended. Mm. But he's been in the top three of the championship on seven different occasions. He, um, again, has, has over 30 top flight victories, which is an incredible statistic that only a handful of dudes have ever had. More than more than thirty Grand Prix victories in any category. Um, and I always thought the... with Danny Pedrosa, he he was he had, he had so many key moments in key seasons. He the luck just wasn't on his side uh, in MotoGP. Yeah. And and um, yeah, I know not not all people are, but sometimes I'm a, I'm a bit of a believer of fate in, in sport, and um, mm. it kind of ties in nicely to what happened to our football team last night. And sometimes I just think, yeah. well, do you know what? It wasn't our year. It wasn't to be. Um, you know, things just didn't go our way. Um, and I just look at Danny Pedrosa's Grand Prix career, his MotoGP career in the Premier Class, and um, mm. you know the guy in any other era. I mean, you think of some of the great eras, particularly in tennis, and look at some some of the players in, yeah. in the current era who, in any other era, would have so many Grand Slam titles to their name. Danny Pedrosa yeah. would be he'd fall into that bracket where if he'd been if he'd been around in MotoGP ten years earlier, he potentially could easily be a three, four, five times world champion in the Premier Class himself. Absolutely. Um, he's that good. He's just he's just landed in this incredible era. And when I look at some of these um, key moments through his career, like this throttle sticking open in Japan when he was challenging for a championship, that mm. desperately unlucky race he had at Mizano in 2012 when he was chasing Lorenzo down for the title and his bike wouldn't start on the grid when he was on pole position. He had to yeah. start from the back of the field and got taken out on the first lap by an errant Hector Barbara. It, when things like happen, that happened, I don't know about you, Dre, but I look back at that and I think, Danny Pedrosa has done everything he can to be a Grand Prix MotoGP world champion, but the way fate transpired, the way the luck played out, it just wasn't meant to be for him. Yeah, I've always said it. Like Motorsport in general is an inherently more luck-based sport than I think a lot of fans would like to admit. Um, and I've debated this with people on many occasions. The what if, 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 if this doesn't happen, you know, and the butterfly effect that comes with that. Um yeah, I, I, I totally get that. I mean, it's it's a shame because, like I said, Pedrosa, 
He's the the, like the overall biggest victim, I, I, I would say, of this incredible era where we've had four or five of the ten greatest bike riders to probably ever walk this earth um, have been in MotoGP in the last ten years. You know, Valentino Rossi, Mark Marquez, Jorge Lorenzo, Casey Stoner. They are all first ballot Hall of Famers the moment they hang up the gloves right now. They, they, could, they could do it tomorrow and they'd all be immediate inductees. Um, you know, they're all you know, probably, you know, in that top 10 to 15 greatest of all time list for me. Um, and Bedros is probably the ultimate victim of that. And, in, in the, you know, he's he's had ridiculously talented teammates like Casey Stone, like Andrea Davizioso, like Mark Marquez. Um the the rivalry with Lorenzo will go back years, and we will we'll, I think we'll look back on that a lot, a lot more fondly than it goes. I mean, let's be real; it was quite ugly at the time. I mean, they, they were both battling for Spanish column presences at yeah, the for same a long time. time. They did not get on at all. They did not. They, they 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 hated each other for years, and I remember remember the, the King of Spain had to force him to shake hands that one time at Catalunya. It was it was awkward. It it, it was not pretty. Those two were. Those two had a, a, a deep rivalry and, um, you know, it, it, it went very far with, with, with those two. And, yeah, um, Pedros is the biggest victim of that. He's he's always been, like, the unlucky one. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's, it sucked because there's been so many little occasions where something just goes wrong that wasn't Pedros' fault when it's ultimately cost him dearly. Um, again, even in 2013, I still remember when Marquez whacked out his traction control call when he made a mistake and next thing you know Pedrosa goes flying that costs him a bucket load of points and and it, it effectively ruled him out of the title race towards the end of that season as Lorenzo and Marquez became you know it kind of became a two-horse fight um on that end but it's a shame it, uh, it's a real shame that you know Pedrosa you know he, he will go down as the greatest to never win a premier class title for me um, but he was close. He was very close on so many occasions, and he had more than enough talent to justify winning one. It, he was always in contention. Um, again, his track record of in being in the top three seven times in, in, in the top flight is, is an unbelievable record. Um, like 95% of riders will never have a resume like that in, in GP motorcycle racing. And yeah, he, for me, is one of the five or six greatest dudes of this era. And he's a legend he absolutely belongs in the hall of fame there is zero for me um and i think anyone who is suggesting otherwise either doesn't know bike racing or just a hater because they've seen the other reps or honda do well and they automatically assume the producer ain't good enough when when you actually apply some nuance to it it's actually it runs a lot deeper than that because he's been the backbone of that team and i, I suspect honda would not be the juggernaut it was today if it wasn't for someone like Pedrosa in the back who's had a hand in development who's been a constant figure of that team since 2006 mm. this is his 13th season with the team in the top flight again that's an incredible track record and he is he has been the backbone that has kept that team afloat for a long long time and like I, I and when when someone like Mar Marquez can humble himself to the point and say that he wouldn't be the rider he is today without him and the, the mentorship that Pedrosa has given him since their time together in the top flight. The people in the paddock know what an important figure Pedrosa is. And I think for me, that speaks volumes way more than what a random fan tweeting Julian Ryder has to say. Mm. And when you look at Danny Pedrosa's career and his, his, his bad luck that has plagued him throughout his career, which 
not only has, has it cost him potentially world championships, but it's cost him a lot of Grand Prix appearances. It's it's cost him a lot of pain, a lot of injuries. I mean, there's been uh, an incredible uh, graphic posted by BT Sport today on their MotoGP um, Twitter feed of the career injuries that Danny Pedrosa sustained. Um, and, you know, some of them obviously are more memorable than others. It's that famous high side he had at the Saxon Ring um, back mm-hmm. in 2008, which um, saw him suffer a dislocated... Uh, Let's have a look here. Dislocated right ankle. Um, and, you know, <laughs> there's so many other injuries that you can point back to. The He's fractured his right collarbone twice, including that crash he had with Simoncelli at Le Mans uh, in 2011. He's also fractured his left collarbone twice, um, mm-hmm. um, the last of which came in the Saxon Ring in 2013, midway through that season when he was um, challenging Marquez and Lorenzo for that championship. And it was really at that point in that season when Marquez stole a march as both Pedroza and yeah. Lorenzo had their injuries. Um, he fractured his humerus back in um, Mategi in 2005 in his final uh, 250 season. Who can forget that drastically risky surgery he had just a couple of years ago to fix that arm pump, which at that point we thought might be ending his career um, after yeah. the opening round in Qatar, where he took a couple of races off and we didn't know whether we'd see him again um, in Indeed. MotoGP. Um, he's fractured both legs. He's fractured uh, his left ankle. He's fractured his left foot. Um, he suffered contusions. He's fractured his his uh, metacarpal in his left hand. So many injuries over the course of Danny Prochoza's career. Um, I mean, we look at him. I mean, he's nicknamed the Baby Samurai. Um, and you know, we look at this 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 tiny little guy, Dre. But he is hard as nails to to recover from all of these injuries, to still come back and race at the highest level and beat the best in motorcycle sport um, in the world over more than ten years. Um, mm. it, it just just goes to show as well, not just how hard motorcycle races in general are, but how how tough physically, mentally, emotionally Danny Pedrosa has had to be. And when you see this catalogue of injuries that he's gone through over the course of his career, it puts his decision to hang up his helmet into context. Let's not forget one very important thing about he is five foot two and he weighs about seven stone. He is a tiny, tiny man by any measure. Um, and he made a career for himself for the for the last 13 years in the top flight of riding a 260 horsepower, 160 kilo prototype bike that can travel at 220 miles an hour. Um, and as mentioned, he's had over a dozen and a half major injuries in his in his biking career. He fractured um, his wrist and- just this year when he crashed with Zarco in Argentina. Let's not forget. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he's, he, he is fragile. There's no doubt about it. body has taken a battering over the last two decades. But he has come back every single time without fail, and he still shows his class on many occasions. Um, and I think that will be the legacy of Pedrosa that will stand out even more than his racing career. His physical and mental toughness is unparalleled for me in bike racing i've never seen a rider quite like him who's been able to bounce back from so many brutal injuries and you mentioned the arm pump and that was probably the worst of the bunch where we were legitimately thinking this could be the end for pedrosa prematurely i I remember it was so bad that casey stoner offered to step in um just just because he owed honda a solid and he knew that he knew how important pedrosa so was to that camp and he wants to do it for danny which shows the respect that he had for the for the man Indeed, Casey was willing to do him a solid, which, again, we all thought Casey was never going to get on a bike again. 
yeah, we were wrong on that one, but still, but still, do it for Danny Pedrosa, which which just just shows just how highly um, he he thought of the man. Um, uh, And yeah, given all these injuries that he's had, I I think it's 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 great that um, obviously we'd love to have seen Danny Pedrosa bow out as a world champion in MotoGP, um, but I'm happy if nothing else that he's able to bow out of MotoGP on his own terms um, and you know call his own career to a halt um as i mentioned he said he's an incredible career not just in the most gp class but across grand prix racing in general dating all the way back to 2001 um in the 125s uh 54 career grand prix victories um he is uh on 153 podiums if he has one more pole position before the end of the season it would take him to 50 in his career um in grand prix racing um up until this season, he has never been out of the top eight in the World Championship in any class, in any season um, in his career. Uh, and if you take out his rookie season um, in the 125s when he did finish eighth, he's not been outside the top six in the World Championship um, at all. He has won a Grand Prix, at least one Grand Prix, every season, with the exception of his first ever season and this current season. Um, and we would dearly love to see Danny Pedrosa take at least one more Grand Prix victory. Um, before he says farewell um, in Valencia at the, the end of this season. Um, it is his, for his, this very reason, for Danny Pedrosa, that we have named this week's edition of Bike Live Sayonara Samurai, um, mm-hmm. because uh, we will be saying Sayonara to Danny Pedrosa at the end of the season, one of the all-time greats um, in Grand Prix motorcycle racing. Um, Danny Pedrosa, who will be retiring at the end of this season, and we join the rest of the world in simply saying thank you, Danny. Let's get into the racing that took place uh, last weekend because there was a lot of it. So we've got to cram a lot in um, over the time we have left around an hour or so um, to go um, on this week's edition of Bike Live. And we're going to start in Mazzano and the World Superbikes that took place um, last weekend. The final round of the World Superbike Championship seemingly this year. It's not, but it seems like an eternity before the next one um, in, yeah. nine, in nine weeks' time at Portimao. Um, so um, let's enjoy this while we can. Let's talk about World Superbikes while we can, because we're not going to have two months where we're not going to be able to talk about a whole, whole, uh, whole much at all. Um, and the weekend, in many ways, panned out exactly how you'd think um, if you hadn't seen any results. Starting with Super Bowl, where Tom Sykes took pole. Um Situation normal. Seventh pole position in a row at Misano, which is ridiculous. Um, no one's beaten him in a Super Bowl session there since 2010 um, because their Misano didn't host a World Superbike round um, in 2013. It's held one in every other year since 2011. Um, and Tom has been on pole for all of them. Um, now, he didn't really feature beyond that in the races themselves. He finished fifth in both races, but that didn't stop Kawasaki taking a double because Jonathan Ray... Uh, it was in his usual imperious form. Um, we'll talk about race two in a minute, Drake. He had to work quite hard for that one, but no one really had an answer for him at all um, in race one whatsoever. It was, in many ways, similar to the Jonathan Ray that we saw um, at Laguna Seca. It was just that relentless pace from the front of the field where 
it wasn't necessarily Jonathan Ray putting huge time into them on a single lap, but it was just that relentless pace that simply no one could match. And basically, with every passing lap that went by, Jonathan Ray just became a smaller green speck in the distance of his pursuers. Yeah, um, very similar to Bruno race one, where it was just a matter of he led from the front, he, and he just wasn't really challenged the whole way through. It's just um, that Jonathan Rain, the first half of races, is so strong when he's when he's able to lead from the front. Is that he can be he can basically be two to three tenths faster than anyone at any given time, and by that point, the race is already over. By the time you get to half distance, because you know. When the tires start wearing down, you've not got the grip to make the to make the difference back up. It's uh, it's 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 a real hard time if you're the one chasing him. It's just, uh, um, yeah, it's one of those things where you just, as he said, he just becomes a, a smaller and smaller speck because his his pace is just that utterly relentless at the front. He like when he's at the front like that, he's unbeatable. Um, when 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 the bikes hooked in correctly, and it was in this occasion, and he ended up winning that first race fairly comfortably in the end. It was about a two point seven second victory in the end, and um, he looked like he had it in hand. It, it looked he looked very comfortable for him out there. And in in terms of again of just raw speed and aggression, um, yeah, we we've been here before, people. Um, and yeah, Jonathan is just super good in that aspect, and yeah, no one was able to really give up give him any sort of threat. Mm, yeah, it was it was a sensational riding race one. Eugene Laverty kind of led the chase, but no one was really on a par for Jonathan Ray. It was similar to um, the round earlier in the season. I think I think you called it Aragon earlier this season, where um, yes, Tom Sykes took pole position, but on those first runs in Super Bowl one, where they were running on race tires, Jonathan Ray had a half second lead over the field, um, mm-hmm. which which kind of gave us the uh, the inclination that he was on another level. Uh, to anyone else, and it was simply Sykes's pace on a quality tire that stopped him being on pole because. Um, Jonathan Ray was seven tenths clear of anybody else in Super Bowl two when he put the Q tire on, and it was simply Sykes on his incredible Super Bowl form that stopped him from taking pole himself. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously Sykes could not repeat that in the race because he can't race on a Q tire. Um, so Ray's performance in race one was sensational. Race two was more tricky. Now he, like many, um, had been shocked and rocked by the news that had broken from the Scarys Road Racing the previous day of, of William Dunlop's passing, and Jonathan Ray did say that a large part of his motivation in race two was he did want to win for William Dunlop and for his family and dedicate it to him, um, which is what he ended up doing, Dre. Um, but it was by no means an easy win in the same way that his race one success was because this was kind of when Dorna dreamt up this bizarre sort of madcap race two reverse grid format a year and a half ago. I think this is the kind of race that they had in mind. And Vandermark from pole in race two took Jonathan Ray to the limit. It really was. You you could see that he was at the limit, especially after the race itself, where he was exhausted. He was physically and I think just mentally exhausted at the end of race two, and it showed um, because race race two was hard. He he was he was under constant pressure the entire way through. Yeah, he was starting. He was a uh, starting ninth. Um, he had to he had to fight his way through the field like he normally did. He didn't just just completely destroy the field in the opening two or three laps like he usually does. He had to really earn this one. Michael Vandermark was strong pretty much all the way through, um, and yeah, it's one of those things where it was it turned into a three way dogfight between him, Michael Vandermark. He was drifting off in the first half of the battle, but then came back towards the end as Jonathan was. 
was almost held up to a little little bit by Michael in the middle period of the race, but he just couldn't find a way around. Um, it's it's crazy where that where that's concerned, but it was it led to a fantastic fight between Jonathan, Michael, and Marco, where they were all just trying to find a way to work around each other. Um, and yeah, like Jonathan found the way around. And like, I remember hearing Freddie Spencer on commentary for, for Eurosport talk about it. And he said, yeah, what, what made it so interesting was the, was the basic fact that, um, jo- you know, Jonathan was stronger on certain parts of the track and Michael was stronger on certain yeah, it parts was fascinating, of the track. Wasn't it? Bit, because yeah. uh, as soon as Johnny Ray caught Vandermark and he caught him fairly quickly, um, I was watching the race thinking, Johnny's just going to cruise past here and, and do what he did in, in Laguna Seca when he got past Laverty, he just broke away. Um, but mm. there were those key areas where Jonathan Ray was putting moves on people. There was that um, switch back from turn two to turn three, um, which is where mm. he carved Sykes up. Um, and the, I think he caught, I think he passed Davies there as well. Um, and Indeed. he tried that move on Vandermark. Vandermark had an answer for it. He, he just basically cut his nose off. Um, there were all the key braking zones around the circuit Vandermark was superb Vandermark was so good on the brakes that Jonathan Ray pretty much realized that he was not going to be able to outbreak Vandermark anyway he was going to have to try and do it through one of those switchback corners or through one of the the faster corners on the track like um turn 11 down the back straight the fast right hander where he was always so good you know it quickly became apparent that even though Jonathan Ray caught Vandermark passing it was not going to be easy um mm. and um, he, you know, he tried it through that fast left onto the back straight where we saw Lorenzo crash in the MotoGP race last year. Vandermark would just drift back past him on the on the straight towards Quercia, the next uh, left-hander. Uh, it was a fascinating battle between the two, as you say, where the two bikes had their strengths, the two riders had their strengths. And even when Johnny Ray did finally pass Vandermark with three to go, Vandermark still kept up with him. Vandermark still kept the pressure on right the way to the finish um, and very nearly took him back again. It was it was a great battle between the two, and obviously, as you say, Melandri was in close company as well. Um, one of the better World Superbike races, arguably of the season, in that it went all the way down to the way. It was a tense battle to the finish. Um, Jonathan Ray ended up winning it, and yeah, he's now 92 points clear, Ray, in, in the World Championship. Mm. Um, at this rate, he might well clinch this um, at uh, Magni Court again, just as he did last year. Um, although, of course, this one would be with uh, four races to spare if he does that, um, with Argentina and Qatar, the final two rounds of the season. Um, it's kind of been that way for a while, but it's a matter of when rather than if Jonathan Ray wins this championship. And it, it's absolutely certain now that Jonathan Ray is going to wrap this championship up um, and he's going to do it soon. But it, it, again, it is another great illustration of um, how he, Perariba, Kawasaki as a whole have taken another drastic set of regulation changes um last year of course they were more sporting and in terms of the format to try and stop him this year they were more technical um to try and mm-hmm. stop jonathan ray and yet again ray reba and kawasaki coped quickest coped best and continue to assert their dominance they have indeed and like it kind of makes you wonder at this point what's it going to take to to truly bring Kawasaki to its knees because they just keep finding ways to innovate and ways to to get up there so that you know they they, they just they just can't beat them by, by conventional. I, I don't think it's regulation change that does it. I think the only way that Kawasaki and Ray get pulled back is if Ducati, Aprilia, Honda, whoever it is, pump some money in. Yeah, and the thing is. It's going to get to the point where the series will get criticised for basically trying too hard to bring the Kawasaki down. And like this, this year alone was 
um, was controversial enough in that regard um, with the implementing rev limits and concessions and basically going down the MotoGP road of trying to make superbikes more competitive. And has it really worked? I mean, I think, I think, I think within races it has, but the, the championship outlook has basically maintained the same. I mean, Jonathan Ray, as race two proved, didn't win by much. He won by a quarter of a second, no. and he only won it by a quarter of a second from a Yamaha. It wasn't ahead of Sykes and Davies, as it often has been for the last three years. So I think we are seeing more bikes up the front and more variety at the front, but as as MotoGP has proven with Mark Marquez in recent years, you can change the regulations and make it closer, but the best still is the best. Yeah, um, the cream will always still rise to the top, and like, if anything, this is one of Jonathan's more dominant seasons with Kawasaki yeah, so ten far. Ten wins he's had, now. He's, yeah, he's up, he's up to ten wins for the year, and we still have eight races to go. He could he could match his I think twenty fifteen haul of of, of fourteen, um, and it would not surprise me. As you say, he could probably wrap this up at Magni Core of, of the way he's going. He's won five out of the last six now, and no one's really put up any sort of challenge in the last three or four weekends. It's 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 looking ominous again for the field and. Like, this is the perfect combination of bike and rider in perfect harmony. Yeah, yeah, you can cripple the bike, but when Jonathan is that good in it, what's the point? Um, it, it seems to have definitely hurt Sykes, for sure, because he's not where he was last year, where he was challenging for second. He's now down in kind of a no-man's land there in fourth place, 30 points behind Vandermark and 60 now behind Jazz Davis, and those two are normally quite closely ranked together. Um, so it's, I think it certainly has had an effect just not where I think Dorna were hoping. I think they were hoping that it was going to be a, a crippler for Jonathan Ray, and it just hasn't been. He's still the Jonathan Ray of old, where if he's if he hasn't got any major shenanigans, he's on the podium. That's almost guaranteed now. Um, and yeah, it's he's, he's had it again, basically. So it, I, I don't know what it's going to take. I think mean, people were saying, oh yeah, race two was proof that you know, the rules have worked. So, well, I would say in response to that, besides Vandermark, like, what really looks all that different about the championship compared to what it's looked like in recent years? Vandermark is higher than where he usually would be in third, but it's the same five or six names at the top as it was last year, effectively. It's just in a slightly different order between three and six, and yeah, it's... I, I think the overall... Um, the overall impact, I don't think, has been felt like Dorner, I think, was hoping for. At least that's where I'm sitting anyway. Hmm. I mean, if we're, if we're looking into the future of World Superbikes, next year is such a big year in that the new Ducati comes along, um, the new V4 hmm. Panigale, and whether we can expect them to be at championship level in year one with that bike remains to be seen. We just need to look at how difficult Honda have found it with their new new machine, the new Fireblade. Um, they're still really trying to get it up to the speed that we want it to be at and the speed that their previous older bike was. Um, hmm. So it, it may take them time. Um, but I think, I think that's what it's going to take. It's pretty clear that this current breed of superbikes, the ZX-10R is clearly the, the premier bike out there and Jonathan Ray is the premier rider mm -hmm. on it. Um, and, and there is very little at the moment that's, that's going to change that. Um, Chas Davies continues to be the heir apparent. He continues to be the number two guy and he still is the number two guy in the championship. Um, and he was number two to Jonathan Ray in race one. Um, but... Uh, Another weekend, Dre, where both Davies and Ducati were just missing a little bit, weren't they? I mean, they were 
essentially, the way I saw it, the third best manufacturer in both races. They only they were gifted second uh, when Yuji Laverty made a mistake on the Aprilia in race one. And in the end, they were beaten by a Kawasaki and a Yamaha in race two. So Ducati and Davies still missing a little bit. And in many ways, I think they're already looking towards the new Panigale, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's like they, it's like they're, they're begging for it to show up now. Really, I mean, yeah, like Ducati. Were, I mean, Chaz Davis's results, I think, don't tell the full story. It was Marco Melandri that seemed like um, the more competitive Ducati, especially in race two. Chaz was was not in the same ballpark as the leading group. But yeah, I completely agree that overall, I think once again, Vandermark on the Yamaha um was was really the you know the guy to beat this weekend he was strong here last year and he was strong again this year in both races this time and he very nearly won race two again like he very nearly won race one the previous season so yeah from where i'm sitting um i think yamaha again has, has established a better foothold in, in this fight for second place in the championship and if you're jacati well are you going to be that totally invested in this season knowing that you've got a brand new panagale coming next year and your support for the current 1299 is going to finish at the end of the season i mean i think i mean at, at this point is you can't you're just going to sit there and go you know what sod it we got the new bike coming we're just going to forget about the rest of the season it's a write-off let's just you know let's just make sure we get second in the manufacturers championship they've got a they've got a 54 point lead on the yamaha where that's concerned and they, they should be pretty safe for second place where that's concerned but um i i if you're Ducati, I think this season is is quickly becoming a bit of a write-off. Um, Melandri is just not where they want where they want him to be, and Davies is still just 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 hasn't got the legs to chase Jonathan Ray over an entire season. It's it's a bit of a shame. Yeah, and what what kind of struck me last weekend when I was I was looking at the championship standings and looking at how the season has now sort of taken shape and panned out is how far away it seems when Ducati seemed as if they had the dominant bike earlier in the season. Remember around Aragon time, um, Thailand Aragon time, when Ducati, Jonathan Ray was being surrounded at the front of the races by a sea of Ducatis, um, be mm. it Davies, Malandri, Forres, who had a great start to the season when he was barely off the roster. Um, but when I look back at Ducati now, um, Chas Davies has now had four podiums in a row prior to Mizano race two with those three seconds. Um, Marco Melandri has only had four podiums since his double at the start of the season um, in Phillip Island. So that's four podiums in 16 races. Um, Xavi Forres hasn't had a podium since that race one at Aragon. Um, mm. And obviously, Rinaldi's still a, still a rookie uh, on their junior bike. So um, Ducati seem to have either regressed or they've um, just simply been caught out by the improvement like Kawasaki have just jumped ahead a step and pulled clear of them um, but they've also been reined in by Yamaha too so Ducati have very much tailed off since that stunning start to the season they had when um, Melandri, uh, between Melandri and Davies they won three of the first four um, and four of the first six um, and they what they haven't won since uh, which, which is astonishing they haven't won between them either Ducati hasn't won since Aragon race two um, because the wins since then have been split between Kawasaki and Yamaha. Uh, yeah. So, so Ducati have certainly uh, faded since their great start to the season, and and Chas Davies has suffered as a result of that. Um, other teams and other riders have certainly improved as the year goes on, and that applies to Aprilia and to Eugene Laverty, who's now 
having broken his and the team's podium drought with that result in race two at Laguna. He then followed that up at Mizano in race one with another rostrum. It should have been second because he made that mistake at the final corner with a few laps to go and dropped behind Chaz Davies. He had also qualified on the front row earlier that day um, in race mm. one. Um, and what really interests me about Eugene Laverty, I mean, he's been very outspoken since last weekend um, on a few issues. Um not just next year, but also what's going on at Aprilia. And I'll read these to you, Dre, because I think they're very interesting. Um, mm. He says, to be honest, we should have had these podiums a year ago, but we didn't have due to a lack of inside knowledge at Aprilia. They changed the fuel tank, which spoiled the weight distribution, so we changed it back. It has been capable of the podium since Laguna Seca last year. The mechanics who understand the superbike have all gone to Aprilia's MotoGP team. I suddenly realized I'm the guy in the WSB garage who knows the bike best, so I put my foot down and told them we're doing it my way. That went down like a lead balloon, but it's funny how friction disappears when you start getting podiums. We'd been going around in circles until recently. Um, I mean, first of all, it puts a, it puts a pretty situation over the last year and a half into a bit of context when you consider that a lot of their key personnel have been parachuted into its MotoGP team, which has kind of left their World Superbike team in the lurch a little bit. Um, mm. and lose Eugene Laverty with it. But um, Eugene Laverty kind of stuck his neck out, didn't he, um, with what he said and kind of taking the lead within that team, um, which is a brave thing to do. But now that it's worked, Dre, it, I can't help but be impressed by the guy that he's really taken a key leadership role in that team, told the team, this is the way we're going, had the courage of his convictions, and he's been proven right for it. He absolutely has. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the reason why Eugene Lapp is probably the number one free agent on the block in terms of World Superbike Silly Season. He's only, he's had hinted talk about, you know, both big two factories about, about signing him for next season. Laverty has genuinely dragged that Aprilia to really strong results in the last three or four weekends. He's only been out of the top six once since, since, uh, since Bruno basically and yeah those two podiums were a long time coming for a felt like they were a long time coming and they were knocking on the door and so yeah what what laverty says definitely adds up to me where it's like the bikes had potential for quite some time but it it just goes through that a pretty how stretched a pretty you are as a factory right now where they're putting their eggs in the moto gp basket right now and well that's not exactly turning out wonderfully for them, despite the great talent they have in that department. Especially when you consider you know, the fact- that at the time they made that conscious decision um, to divert their resources to the MotoGP project, they were the world superbike champions with Sylvain Gintoli. Yeah, that wasn't that long ago. It really, you know, the, it, even at the end of that, they had Gintoli as the, the reigning champ. Leon Haslam was winning races in that, in that team, as was Jordi Torres. And they've not been the same. They've fallen down the pad since it's looking like they're not even going to be in World Superbikes next year by the sounds of it. But by what Laverty's saying, um, Sean Muir is definitely moving on from a pretty as a bike for next year for certain. BMW, so, by the sounds of it. Yeah. So it's it's looking a lot like it'll be down to somebody else's business whether they want the Aprilias or not. But it certainly won't be by what, what Muir's going to be running next year by the looks of it. But yeah, Laverty's results have been fantastic. He's ridden very, very well the last couple of the weekends. And that's why, again, he's probably the number one guy on the, on the block for a reason now. Where and, and a, a lot of, I know a lot of fans, I know a lot of people I've spoken to are, are pulling for, for Laverty to join Kawasaki and give Jonathan Ray a real fight next year. Um, 
Um, even to the point where there's some rumours going around that Jonathan Ray may be blocking this move uh, with Haslam knocking on the door for that for that seat alongside him as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of smoke in the air regarding World Superbikes, and it all seems to stem around Eugene Laverty at the moment. And with the results he's getting at the moment, it's hard to argue why not, because, yeah, he's, he's riding very, very well indeed. And we, we shouldn't forget how um, difficult his season has been from an injury standpoint. He had that horrendous injury back in Thailand earlier in the year, which took a long time to get over. Um, and, you know, even when he returned to racing, it still took him a little bit of time to, to find his feet again. Um, the other key comments that he made last weekend after the racing at Bazaar were about next year. And um, as Dre mentioned, there have been rumours circulating around Eugene Laverty's future, not just um, potentially with a move to Kawasaki, but also Jijikati. And here's what Eugene Laverty said on the issue. He said, these results show people what I'm capable of. The Kawasaki and Yamaha doors are closing, but Jikati's is open. The Aruba Jikati team will understand how to extract the potential of the new V4, and I'm very interested. A strong lineup of Chaz and me is what that project needs. Rinaldi is there as the third rider, but a new bike needs experienced riders. I enjoy winning, and I need to make sure I can do that. Um, there's a few things within that. Um, first of all, um, if I was being a little bit um, petty, a little bit cynical... We all know that Eugene Laverty and Marco Melandri have never got on. So for Mark, for Eugene to be uh, saying mm. that he, he would be a great asset to a Ruby Ducati alongside Chaz next year might well be a bit of a dick at Marco. Um, I'm, sh- I'm um, shocked, really. Yeah. Um, so um, so that's point one. Um, point two, I don't think Eugene Laverty personally needs to um, prove to anyone how good he is. I've always thought, I've always rated him very highly. This, guy, this guy's a former runner-up in the World Superbike Championship. He was runner-up to Sykes in 2013. Um, he's uh, a multiple race winner. He's won 13 World Superbike races um, in his career. Um, with Aprilia, the last of those came um, with what was the last Suzuki win in World Superbikes at the opening round of the 2014 season uh, in Phillip Island when he rode for the Voltcom uh, Crescent team. Um, Eugene Lamerty says he will be a great asset to Ruben Ducati next season. Dre, I agree with him. Uh, it, it comes down to, I suppose, how high do we rate Chas Davies? Do we, uh, sorry, how high do we rate Eugene Laverty? Do we rank him in that same bracket? Do we think he's in that upper echelon with the likes of Ray Davies, uh, Vandermark, potentially Sykes if he can find his form again? Because as far as I'm concerned, I think Eugene Laverty's every bit as good. Well, he's got a proven track record in World Superbike, so why wouldn't you believe? I mean, he's his MotoGP record stood up. Yes, absolutely. He was fantastic in MotoGP with Aspar as well, and he was punching well above his weight. The only reason he left was because he was he was going to be on the second bike that's going to be the year-old bike in that Ducati. He, he didn't want to ride around on a two-year-old machine. He felt like he was... Is, he's always had a very high value of himself, Laverty, and that's not... That's not unjustified. He's a very good rider, and he's ridden well in everywhere he's ridden in recent times. And again, we are talking about a guy that has multiple Superbike wins to his name in his previous run in in the series. He's just on a bike right now that cannot reach a full or cannot reach his full potential as a rider. And yeah, like why why not see him on a on a Ducati or a Kawasaki? Like the way he's going right now, the way he's riding, he's. He's, he's riding so well at the moment. Again, his, his Laguna Seca weekend was brilliant. His Masano weekend was very good. His Bruno weekend was very good. He's quickly becoming like the best rider now outside of the top six. He's And the only reason why really he's probably not near Zafi Flores is in the championship is because he missed those, those two weekends after that awful Thailand injury. So, 
yeah, why not? Why not see him on a V4 alongside Chaz Davis? Because I think that could be the guy that Ducati's been looking for for the last three or four seasons as a proper partner for Chaz Davis and a two-pronged attack on Jonathan Ray. Why not have Eugene Laverty alongside alongside Chaz Davis? That's an excellent-looking team. And Marco has proven to not be the guy that we were hoping that he was going to be. You know, again, Melandri, another guy with a proven track record in the past, but it's just not really hit the ground running with Ducati and a bit like a bit like when Davide Giudiolo was there. So yeah, from where I'm sitting, um, why not give Liberty a chance Liberty a chance on a, on a on a better bike? Yeah, it's pretty clear the more and more we see it that that, that double at Philip Island at the start of the season was a false storm for Marco Belandri, who um mm. did have a podium in, in race two and on another day he might have won, but um it does look as if his days at Ducati are coming to an end at the end of this season. Um in race one, he was so poor, down in seventh, um, beaten to the flag by Forres. He was only just ahead of Savadori and Camilla at the end um, on the Aprilia and the Honda, respectively. Um, MCN are linking with him with a move to that new GRT Yamaha team, the team that, of course, is currently um, doing so well in the Super Sport class. They won the championship last season. They won the race last weekend, as we'll tell you in a moment. Um, and uh, Andrea Dossoli, who runs that team, is uh, a close friend of Marco Melandri. Um, so that may well be where he see we see him land next. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly think if, if Ducati are going to replace Marco next season, Eugene Lamity is as good a replacement as they're going to be able to find anywhere at the moment. Um, Definitely. So um, I would certainly advocate that being the change. Um, let's tell, take you through the results then. There are one or two other riders who had weekends perhaps worth mentioning, but we're tight for time and um, no one really besides myself cares about Tom Sykes' two fifth places. Um, So let's tell you about the racing last weekend. Jonathan Ray, the winner in race one from Davies and Lamity uh, with Vandermark in fourth. Sykes, the pole man, fifth. Forrest, sixth. Um, So he's starting to get back towards that form we showed at the start of the season um, because he did beat Melandri to the flag in seventh. Savadori on the uh, other Aprilia, eighth. Leon Camier on the Honda, ninth. And Leandro Mercado, the Argentine, uh, completing the top ten. Um, ahead of Topak Raskatioglu, who's still not fully fit after that horrendous uh, you know, descent from the, the corkscrew a few weeks ago at Laguna Seca. Um, he did return mm. to racing last weekend and finished 11th in race one, ahead of the uh, Yamaha wildcard Nicolo Canepa, Roman Ramos, Jake Gagné, and Andresandro Andriozzi, um, who, uh, along with having the longest name in the paddock, um, is also the new replacement for Andre Jezek at the Guandolini team. He took the final point. Uh, race two went to Jonathan Ray by just a third of a second from Van der Mark with uh, Melandri close by in third. Davies fourth. Sykes fifth again from Lowe's who uh, crashed out of race one. Um, rebounded to finish sixth in race two. Uh, did Alex Lowe's. Lorenzo Salvadori beat Larity to the flag actually in race two um, with Larity struggling to overcome um, something that he's not really used to um, in World Superbikes these days on that Aprilia and that is a race two grid handicap. Um, he ended up finishing down in 8th. Uh, Loris Baz, ninth on the BM. He also had a poor race 1. He failed to finish. Leon Camier, 10th. Rinaldi, 11th. Toprak, 12th. Canepa, 13th. Gagne, 14th. And Roman Ranos uh, took the final point. Championship standings then. Uh, we still are in the middle of July, but there are only four rounds to go in World Superbikes in eight races. Um, so Jonathan Ray is closing in on that fourth title. Uh, he leads Chas Davies by 92 points. Um, and as we stand at the moment, there are only 200 points left to race for. Um, Michael Vandermark is third. He's 30 points behind Davies in second. Um, Tom Sykes is a further 30 points behind Vandermark in fourth. It's spaced out at the top in World Superbikes because Sykes is 25 clear of Melandri in fifth. Um, he has jumped um, back ahead of Lowe's in the championship on countback because Melandri has two wins to Lowe's one. They're both 193 points. Chavi Forres is seventh. Laverty eighth. Toprak ninth. And Lorenzo Sabadori rounds out the top 10. 
Uh, on to World Super Sport then, and uh, the continuing championship battle, which um, twos and throws between uh, any number of Yamaha riders. Um, this time we saw the fifth different winner uh, in the Super Sport World Championship this season, also on a Yamaha, it has to be pointed out, uh, for the GRT Yamaha team. Boy, was that a bittersweet race trade for GRT Yamaha because they won Oof. the race. And we'll, let's first talk about the good news for them. Um, a virtuoso, brilliant win for Federico Caracasulo, who's um, not always shown us what he's capable of this season. He's, he's had flashes of brilliance where he's been up the front and um, threatened results. But this is the first time really this season, Dre, would you say that he's put it all together? Definitely. Like, as you say, Caracasulo has always been a guy who can win races, without question. He's been doing that in Supersport now for two or three years. Um, but the way his season has gone, he's always been in the mix, but has never been able to have a complete run. This was a dominant weekend by Caracasulo, by all accounts. He was super fast all all weekend. He crushed it in qualifying with a good half second advantage over everybody else in, in qualifying trim, and then didn't really come under too much threat um during the race itself again he was just really good um and it, it's a shame we didn't get the most entertaining race because they were all fairly spread out in this case and like jules Cazelle, who was trying to play the wall again he mm. basically got shoved off half the time like the other riders were having none of this yeah, uh, this time um yeah like we're not having three straight rounds of Cazelle playing blocker um so yeah once garakazula got into that open air yeah, basically, no one was challenging him, really. Clizel ended up falling to fourth. Raffaele de Rosa, again, had another brilliant ride, but just not enough pace on the MV Augusta to challenge Federico. And, yeah, just an overall br br brilliant weekend from Federico, and he's got himself back into tides of contention with that victory. It was very important that he got it, and he did. Mm, he did. And, uh, as I mentioned, it was a bittersweet race um, for the GRT Yamaha team because... Uh, you know, if if you were ringing up a fan of that team and and telling them the result of the race on on Sunday morning, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, we won, just the wrong one won. Um, mm -hmm. in terms of where the championship was at, because defending champion Lucas Mayas crashed out on the second lap of the race. Um, and unlike his uh crash earlier in the season where he remounted and finished eighth back at um, back, I think it was Aragon, wasn't it, where he crashed and remounted and came back through the field. Um, he was unable to do that this time and. We, we've spoken about him, Dre, in, in a couple of shows after World Super Spot Rounds this season where it's looked like he doesn't say have that same level of pace that he had um, through periods of last season and earlier this season where he won by a street at Phillip Island in the opening race of the season. Nearly mm -hmm. won the second race, probably got Krummenackered, um, and hasn't really been the same since. Um, and he, he struggled for pace in Super Pole on the Saturday. We saw him visibly angry beating away at the, at the tank of his of his Yamaha R6 after Super Bowl because he knew he'd balls up his final pole uh, pole attempt and then mm. had to start sixth and another crucial mistake just like the one we saw him make um, at Imola I mean Mahias should know better than anyone because he showed it last season finishing races and regular podiums is so valuable particularly in a championship like this where you only race once per weekend and the calendar is deceptively short um, given that is, they, they don't go to Laguna Seca, they um, you know they only race once per weekend, so it's essentially a twelve race championship um, in Super Sport. Um, so you can't afford DNFs. DNFs or or races missed to injury, as Safoglu showed last season, are so costly. Um, and you get the feeling with Mahias, I mean, he's had one DNF too many anyway, but 
even the pace he's currently showing, he doesn't look a rider who's about to chase down a championship deficit, is he? No, he doesn't. And yeah, again, no podium since since that second round in Thailand. And just generally, he has not looked like the same guy that um, he was when he won the championship last year. The consistency is gone. The overall pace, I just don't feel like is there. Um, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, did that accident after Thailand affect him more than we thought? I wonder. That's the only theory I've got as to why this has happened. Um, it's, 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 it's bizarre to me. It is bizarre to me how this has happened, that Mahias, who was so good last season, is now behind his teammate, who has had a, a, a very patchy um, very patchy 2018 season, to say the least. But Caracasulo now is now with the win, there's, you know, to, to match Mahias' one win for the season, he's now a point ahead of him now in the championship. So, I don't know. It's very I mean, bizarre. But, I mean, the, the, know, one, Mahias... the one theory that I could pose, and I, I don't like saying this because it almost makes it sound like I'm taking away from his achievements last season, which I'm not because it was a brilliant season he put together and he deserved the championship. He proved that with the way he rode in Qatar at the end of the season to win there. But is there an argument, Dre, to say that purely and simply there are more strong riders on similar equipment to him than there were last year. And and that's not to say that the riders on Yamaha's last year weren't weren't good, because there were guys like Nicky Tooley and, and Sheridan Marias on, on Yamaha's, um, who, who both won races last season, let's not forget, um, on, right. on the Yamaha R6, as well as Caracasulo um, on the same bike as him. But with all due respect to those guys... When you're talking about guys like Sandro Cortese, a Moto3 champion, and Jules Cluzel, um, also on Yamahas at the moment, um, and Randy Krumenacker, who's returning into Austin Series this year, who's a former uh, race winner in Supersport as well, is the competition on Yamaha R6s simply just way tougher this season than it was last season for Mahias? Yeah, definitely. I think last year the problem, like, the, 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 what wasn't a problem for Lucas, obviously he was on the beneficiary side of this, was that. The Yamaha was was comfortably the best bike, but there wasn't enough of them at the front to really, um, you know, really effectively challenge him for the, for the course so of the, the season. So if the Yamaha was good, he was profiting. No one else. Yeah, ex- exactly. And Keenan Sofogli, well, we've seen Kawasaki have been nowhere this year. So it just goes to show you just how freaking good Keenan was on it last year to very nearly steal that title away at the last minute. Um, like, and Kazell was on a Honda last year. So... Um, now you've got an elite rider in the class in Clazelle on a Yamaha. Randy Krimenacker, um, again, has been very good in his first season back in Supersport. Um, Kara Kasudo is still a race-winning level guy, and that was his teammate from last season. And Cortese has walked into the class and is now championship leader. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the level of competition has skyrocketed compared to last year. There's, there's now four or five guys who were in that ballpark on a similar level to Mahias was as opposed to last year, and it was maybe one or two. Um, and, yeah, it, it showed. I don't think Lucas is as good as he was last year, but I also think that the competition is definitely stronger by comparison. Yeah, he had to raise his game this season to keep ahead of the field, and if anything, he's he dropped a level slightly. Um, because, the, as, as I mentioned, the bedrock in many ways of his championship campaign last season was the fact that he didn't really make any mistakes last year. Um, mm. And he, he just kept racking up the podiums, racking up the points, and basically meant that he basically asked Keenan Safogu the question if you make a mistake or if you have another injury, the championship's gone. Um, and that was how it proved. Um, 
we're, we're, we're doing a bit of a disservice to one rider when we say that the competition up the front is so strong on Yamahas, because it's not all Yamahas, of course, is it? Right. At the front in World 2 Sport this season, because once again, Dre, uh, another stellar ride from Raffaele De Rosa, who's uh, continues to extend um, his, his podium streak um, at the moment. It's an incredible run um, that the guy is having uh, in World Supersport on uh, an MV Augusta that uh, is clearly not a match, uh, all things considered, for the Yamaha, because if it was, more people would be riding on it. Um, Absolutely. But he has now had five straight podiums um, in World Supersport this season. Only one other rider in the Supersport class this season can say that they've had five podiums in a row, and that is Jules Cluzel. Um, that was a streak that ended at Mazzano last weekend when he finished in fourth. Um, once again, and what can we say about Rafa de Rosa that's not already been said? Perhaps we could say this. Outside title tip? The way he's going right now, yeah. Like, he, like he, he's inadvertently putting pressure on the guys above him to ride good weekends because Rafael de Rosa is not going anywhere. This is, this is his fifth consecutive podium, his best result of the season in, in second place. Since Aragon, he's not been off the podium. So now he's basically going to be forcing um, the other guys around him to ride good races. Otherwise, the Rose is going to just get to pick, pick them apart points-wise. He's still got a lot of... He's going to have to need to probably win two of the last four yeah. to realist I mean, the challenge for a he's title. He's currently 35 points off the championship lead, and um, that is a lot to make up in four races. Make no mistake about it. Um, but uh, as we were saying off air before we started this, Dre, if we're considering, if we're still considering Caracasula and Mahias as championship contenders, we have to consider De Rosa one too. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like, that, that's that's only fair. If you if you if you if you're still considering Mahias, okay, okay, maybe Mahias gets a pass because of his proven track record of winning last year's title that Rafael De Rosa doesn't really have. But he's doing a fantastic job on that MV. We know it has a resource to you know, realistically challenge the Yamahas, which now have one, two, three, four, and five in the championship. But yeah, again, if he's being consistent, it's going to, and if a couple of guys in front of him make mistakes or have major DNFs like Mahias just did, just had a Masano, then who knows? Yeah, it would take Cortese and Clozel to have a, 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 a bad race each, a DNF, which um, they haven't had so far. Cortese's score points in every round have been in the top six in every round which is why he leads mm. the championship. Clozel had that DNF in, in Chang and Boroughram at the start of the season, and that's seventh after remounting in Australia at the start of the season. Uh, Krumanaka has also scored points in every round, but that includes a crash and remount to finish 11th at Aragon uh, earlier in the season. All of the championship contenders have really, they've had their problems. De Rosa, let's not forget, he's, he blew up at Aragon earlier this season uh, yeah. when in the leading group. He, he'd, be, he'd possibly be, well, he'd certainly be ahead of the two GRT Yamahas right now if that hadn't happened. Um, and he is... 13 points behind Randy Krumenak in third. Um, so if, a, if an issue for Cortese and or Cluzel brings them back towards the other Yamahas, then it brings De Rosa right into it too. And just to illustrate how good a season he's having, the top five in the championship, uh, Cortese, Cluzel, Krumenak, Karakasula and Mahias, they've all got over 100 points. De Rosa's level with Mahias on 103 in fifth and sixth. The next guy in seventh, Anthony West on the leading Kawasaki, 52 points further back. Half the points of this guy in sixth, which is De Rosa. So he is so much better than anyone else on any other make of bike, uh, including the rest of the Yamahas, of course, in the field. Um, it, it's it's a terrific season that Rafael De Rosa is having. And I, I say this before because I want to um, bring up the fact that he's not got the greatest resume in Grand Prix history, in motorcycle racing history. Um, and you know, I'd never rated this guy prior to the season. All he has to his name prior to this year was a couple of podiums in 250s back in 2009 
Um, but he's, he'd never been inside the top six, uh, the top five, excuse me, in the World Championship in any class in Grand Prix racing. Um, he'd ridden a few races occasionally in super bikes, not really done much. Um, prior to this season, he'd only ever had one podium in the super sport class, and that was the opening race of 2014. Um, 2016, he won the Superstock 1000 Championship after a last lap final race collision, including Lucas Mahias of all people, which promoted him into the championship winning position. So he's not really got a great resume prior to this season, but boy, has he stepped up. He's just raised his game, and um, for someone to do that at the age of 31, um, so he's not exactly a, a young rider by any stretch. You know, he's you could argue he's, he's past the point now in his career where he's, he's in his, the prime of his life, but he's really mm. doing it. He's really improving and really showing what he's made of this season, and um, he's becoming much less of an unsung hero because we're we're singing his praises loud and clear on this show because we think he's done a great Pretty job. Much every but week, yeah. We, yeah, but we, we we like what he's doing. But um, he deserves credit with every passing race that goes by because he is putting that NBA Augusta in places that it really shouldn't be at. Um, in in World Supersport, you just need to look where his teammate was last weekend, Ayrton Badavini, who himself has won races before in World Supersport. He was down in tenth place and he was some twenty eight seconds behind his teammate um which says it all about the job um that uh, that he is doing Rafael de rosa is doing within that team as far as the championship then at the moment Drake, um it's looking in all probability like we have two key contenders cortez and cluzel and then four who are just in touch who need a bit of luck to bring them back into genuine contention um so from cortez's point of view third versus cluzel's fourth um it's kind of a key result because it takes him from a two-point lead to a five-point lead. Um, and although neither rider had particularly their best weekend, um, Cortese will certainly take the result he got, narrowly beating Cluzel and narrowly extending his championship lead with only four races to go now. Yeah, and Caracasula winning the race was was a very good result because he's not the he was he was he was having a bit of a scruffy season until then basically, and he wasn't. A direct competitor so it's no real harm done in terms of his title race at the moment so yeah i completely agree this was a good weekend for cortese you're not going to win every single race this weekend not in this championship not not with how how close the 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 championship is at the moment so um if you if you can take advantage of, of being ahead of your nearest rival um or in you know in 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 this case um you know, Cassell to to, you know, to to basically finish ahead of him. That's definitely um, that's definitely a step in the right direction for Tazy. It's only it's only three points, but every point counts. It's, it's one less round for Cassell to come back as well. So um, if he keeps staying ahead of Cassell, he will win the title. So yeah, it's it's, it's definitely the way to go at the moment. Yeah, he's he's doing a terrific job. Uh, it's Cortese, who we shouldn't forget. Um, I know he's, he's he's won championships elsewhere, but he is a rookie in World Supersport this year, and he only got that ride with what a couple of weeks to spare before the season started. Didn't have any preseason testing, and and look at the job he's doing. He's doing he's having a terrific season. Um, let's take you to the result then in um, in Mizan last weekend in Supersport. Um, first one of the season for Caracasulo from Rafa de Rosa in second, and Cortese in third. Uh, Cluzel in fourth after the executive order was carried out on him early in the race. Uh, Randy Krumanaka fifth, um, and a very lonely fifth at that. Anthony West on the Kawasaki sixth. Kyle Smith, who's back on a Honda, let's not forget, in seventh, um, in uh, seventh position, um, with wild cards uh, just behind him. Akubo in ninth on the first of the Pachetti bikes, um, with uh, Marias not having a good outing. Ayrton Badavini, of course, is the second of the 
uh, NBA Augusta Factory Riders. Uh, he completed the top 10. Um, shout out actually for the wild cards before we move on. Um, because as I mentioned, uh, one of them managed to make it into the top 10. That was Lorenzo Gabellini. Uh, on a Yamaha, um, but a shout out to Stefano Valtellini as well, uh, the Kawasaki rider who was running up in the top six um, for a lot of that race as a wild card um, on his debut and unfortunately crashed out of that, um, which cost him uh, a result he would have been had he made that the top Kawasaki rider in the race, um, Valtellini. So that didn't work out for him. A rider who has got a bit of Moto3 uh, history behind him. He was a Mahindra rider back in 2016. Um, and only scored points on one occasion as a, a very, very young rider, as only a, an 18-year-old. Um, this was his World Supersport debut, and he put in a good showing, even if he didn't necessarily uh, convert it into points. Um, let's take you through the championship standings then, with just four races to go now. Cortesi leads on 138, five clear of Cluzel. Uh, Krumanaka is 22 off the lead in third. Caracasulo is 34 off the lead in fourth. A point ahead of Mahias and De Rosa. Um, with Anthony West 7th, Luke Stapleford, who is having a bit of a poor time of it since switching to that Yamaha, he's struggling to adjust to it by the looks of it. Um, he had a poor outing last time out. Um, he only finished 14th and added two points. Uh, he's in 8th, just ahead of Thomas Gradinger, who crashed out. Um, and Kyle Smith completes the top 10 now. He jumps into the top 10 at the expense of Nicky Tooley, who, of course, has now switched to Moto2. Uh, World Supersport 300, then, briefly. Um, let's tell you how that panned out. Um, it was kind of your typical World Supersport 300 bunch sprint. It was a 15-rider leading group at the end of the race. Um, and it was won by a rider who um, qualified 13th and at the end of lap 1 was down in 18th. Um, so a bit of a miraculous rise through the field um, to win this one. Congratulations to the Italian wild card. Yes, this is a class where wild cards can still win. Manuel mm. Bastianelli. Um, who took his first victory by just 36 thousandths of a second um, from Mika Perez on the Kawasaki um, in second place. Um, so congratulations to uh, Bastianelli for his first career victory um, in the Supersport 300 class. Um, what you'll notice when I go through this result is that the uh, championship contenders didn't exactly have a great time of it, um, with Manuel Gonzalez in third position um, for his first podium of the season. Um, uh, also, uh, he was the first Yamaha, it's worth pointing out, in the field. Um, Galang Hendra, who had taken his first win last time out of Bruno from pole position, took pole position in this one, but faded in the race. Um, in that leading group, he was uh, he was slipstreamed out of it. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was Bastianelli from Perez and Gonzalez. Fourth position went to another of the wild cards um, in the race uh, in the end, and that was Luca Bernardi. Uh, Luca Grunwald, first of the championship contenders, he finished fifth. Um, ahead of Maria Herrera, who did fight for the lead with a couple laps to go, but fell back a little bit to sixth. Um, Galanghendra, the pole man, seventh. Um, Janik, the uh, teammates of Grunwald on the KTM for the Freudenberg team in eighth. Uh, Dorian Larrero and Anna Carrasco, the two DNA, DS Junior Kawasaki's, ninth and tenth. Um, with Pratna, De La Vega, Bonoli, De Cancellis, and Thaco completing the point scorers, the top 15, which was covered by 3.3 seconds um, in the end um, it was one of those races um, in Super Sport 300 but as I mentioned brilliant victory for Bastianelli um, who made incredible progress um, having qualified 13th and dropped down from that position at the start of the race he made a rapid ascent through the field um, to win in the end congratulations to him for his first career victory championship standings uh, here's what it's done to it Carrasco with three races to go continues to lead but a lead is starting to come under a little bit of threat now uh, with Grunwald finishing 5th to her 10th, um, her lead has shrunk from 21 points to 16. 
uh, with three races to go. Grunwald in second on 68 points to Carrasco's 84. Uh, Borja Sanchez, who was second in the championship going into this race, he crashed out and failed to score. Um, so he's now third, 10 points behind Grunwald. Um, three ahead of Scott DeRue, um, who uh, unfortunately had a, a breakdown, which cost him a chance of a win. Uh, Dorian Loreiro is fifth, two points behind DeRue, uh, with Hendra a point further back in sixth. Level with Perez now, uh, who's also on 52 points. So in the championship, it's 32 points covering the top seven uh, in the Supersport 300 championship. Um, so all still have a chance of the championship with just three races still to go. Um, one other class to bring you, and that is the Superstock 1000 class. Yet another victory for the German Marcus Reiterberger, um, who's basically won every race that hasn't been rain-affected this year. Um, he took the victory ahead of Max Sheep, who was the Bruno winner, and Ricardo Russo in third. Um, that has seen Reiterberger extend his championship lead now um, at the top of the standings. He is 14 points clear of Sheep in second, uh, with Roberto Tamburini on another of the BMWs, third in the championship, 27 points off um, Reiterberger, next round of the championship, and it really pains me to say this, listeners. Uh, next round of the championship in World Superbike, Super Sport 300 and Stock 1000 is in two bleeding months' time. Um, it is uh, midway through September, uh, the next round of the championship. Uh, it is at the brilliant Portimao circuit, so that's the one consolation. The next time Superbikes go racing, it is at one of the best Superbike circuits on the planet. Uh, September the 14th, 15th, and 16th. Um, for the Portuguese round at Portimao. We hope you can last until then. Uh, right, on to BSB and uh, the uh, next round of the British Superbike Championship which took place last weekend uh, at Knock Hill in Scotland. And if you followed us last year um, on Bike Live, you'll know that last year the um, Knock Hill BSB round was dominated by one rider in particular, and that was Jake Dixon, who took his first two wins um, of his career. And to this day, is only two wins. Um, now, turning up a year later at Knock Hill, he went and took pole position with the uh, outright light record around the circuit. And then went on to convert it to another victory in race one. Um, at the risk of understating this, Dre, seems Jake Dixon likes the place. Yeah, it's pretty good around here. Um, <laughs> the way it's going, yeah, like Jake Dixon is really good around Knock Hill. I don't know what it is about it that makes it so special for Dixon, but he, but again, like you know, three wins out of four the last two years he's been here with a second place in the other is really, really impressive. And I mean, this was the this was the race where Jake Dixon really arrived this time last year, and uh, this one this one was no different. Um, again, just 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 very, very good riding all the way through. Um, we'll talk about his race two um, near miss in a minute, but again, race one he basically bullied Leo, um, Leon Haslam into making a mistake, which is rare for yeah, Haslam. The way he's written so far. Yeah, um, which is which is, which is just basically non not been a factor um, for the vast majority of this season. But um, yeah, goes to show you just how hard Dixon had to go to uh, to beat Dixon that way. Yeah, very very impressive indeed. And yeah, uh, an excellent weekend for Dixon that's now taking him up to second in the championship. Mm, it is, and as Dre mentioned, a, a huge result uh, or a huge moment, should I say, which denied him um, a similar result in race two. Um, We'll never know whether he would have won race two had that incident not happened, but I'd be convinced that he would have been, given how quickly he caught Haslam back up again um, towards the end of that race two after 
Um, a moment where it, it's one of those where if you freeze frame it at the exact moment the bike snaps out of control, mm. you end up wondering how on earth does he stay on that bike? Because the bike is probably at one stage pointing 90 degrees left. Um, and he somehow managed to wrestle it back into control and keep going. But obviously he loses so much momentum on the run down to the final hairpin that Haslam just breezes past him um, to take yeah. the lead um, and win the race. And um, before we talk about Haslam, Dre, uh, Dixon was in many ways the story last weekend with his, his 45-point haul. Um, and of course his first win of the year and first win since Knock Hill last season. He's up to second in the championship. And um, he does, I think at the moment, all things equal, look like the likeliest championship challenger to Haslam late in the season. Um, because he's he's shown quite good form. He's been on the podium quite regularly in the last two or three rounds, hasn't he? Not just Knock Hill. Um, but I guess for us to be truly convinced that Jake Dixon can win this season's British Superbike Championship, I guess the last thing for him is he has to prove that he can win somewhere other than Knock Hill. Yeah, I think that definitely has to be the final smoking gun in all this. Because, yeah, I think you're absolutely... This is this is not a freak result for Dixon. Um, he's had six straight podiums now, going back to race one at Alton Park. Um, he's been very good for a little while, and he's kind of gone under the radar a little bit with winning six out of the uh, six out of the last seven. That's you know, it's understandable as to why he's not been talking about as much. But you know, the forty-five points he picked up this weekend has now put him above Bradley Ray, who again, the very quietly is kind of gone through a hard time at the moment. A couple of you know, was a disaster for him. And again, had a, te- had a technical problem in race two uh, at, uh, here at Knockhill. And, and that Stone knocked him. his radiator. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's about as unlucky as you yeah. get, really. Yeah, yeah that, that put Bradley out in race two. But in race one, again, fifth. Not bad. But again, like, Bradley's only seen the podium once since that miracle double at Donington. Um, all of a sudden, it's looking like the best contender for Haslam going forward is going to be Dixon. He's racked up the podium credits now, the last five or six rounds, you know, as, as time has gone on. And yeah, Bradley is, is stuttered um, as, as we get to mid-season. Um, he's still more than comfortable and probably will make the showdown whenever happens. But as you say, like Dixon is, is going really well. He's been consistent in a number of rounds. Um, I'd like to see whether he can, as you say, can win um more than more than one or two rounds um at races besides knock hill i mean he's always gone well at alton park i think that could be a way to go in future um because that's that's the first round of the showdown which is always a good place to start but uh yeah i'd like to see him be more consistent and more a, a bigger variety of races um before we can really start penciling him in as a true title contender but you know second right now he's 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 not doing much wrong at the moment and you can't really criticize because Haslam is just a bit of a cut above at the moment, and there's not much anybody can really do about that. Yeah, Haslam has now, in the last uh, seven races, had six wins and one second place, um, mm-hmm. which is which is ridiculously consistent. So out of a possible, what, 175 points, he's taken 170 um, in, in that time. Um, and and what's what's becoming noticeable for Haslam, Dre, and what's becoming particularly important as we get towards the end of the season, because Haslam... I mean, Haslam could take the next three months off and he'll be in the showdown um, because he's he's already on 210 points, which is above that sort of magic cutoff line, that magic figure we always have in our heads of what you'd need to get to the showdown. 210 is way past that post. Um, so he's already in fact, uh, essentially in it. Um, but he's already at this stage with, uh, let's count them up, nine races to go before the showdown is, is finally cut off and the points are reset. He's already... 
20 podium credits clear of the next best rider, which is Dixon um, in second. Mm. Um, Leon Haslam at the moment is, uh, I think he's on 35 podium credits to his name, and Dixon is on 15 um, as we stand at the moment. Sorry, it's 36 to 16. Um, so if the showdown was to start now, Haslam would already be 20 points clear, and there's no reason to suggest that that gap's going to get smaller. It seems it may even get bigger before the showdown starts, and the showdown, by its very nature and its format, is designed to close the championship up and make it interesting and exciting for the final five, uh, final three rounds of the season. But there's a very, very good chance that Leon Haslam at the moment, the way he's going, might even start the showdown a race clear of the rest. Probably. And the thing is, no championship format out of a straight playoff is going to be a substitute for dominance. We've seen it with Jonathan Ray in the World Championship, and we're seeing it here. Haslam has no major contender right now. And if you look at the championship, if you look at the podium credit standings, it looks like he has very little competition. And when you've run six of the last seven with a second place as the non-win, how can you argue with that? Like, mm. like no matter how, like, again, it doesn't matter what your format is. If you're riding that well and you're dominating that thoroughly, it doesn't matter. You're just going to be that good. There's, 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 no, there's no getting around. And yeah. Like the way the way it's going, like I I don't think anyone realistically is going to be challenging Haslam over the course of the rest of the season. Yeah, it's looking like that. I mean, we'll um we'll we'll see how it goes for the next uh, few rounds. I mean, just briefly on Bradley Way, we did we we did speak about it a little bit already. He's third in the championship, next up behind Haslam and Dixon, and he's now DNF three of the last four races. Of course, the one in Knockhill was not his fault. Um, mm. it. it it depends whether your glass is half empty or half full with him. I mean, Bradley Ray already always seems quite a positive, sort of upbeat guy. And he, he was trying to take the positives from Knock Hill last weekend. He says um, that he was nice to have pace at a track he doesn't particularly like. He says in his own words, I always have crap results here. Um, mm. So it's nice to see we have the pace. Um, as he says, it means he will go well um, at Brands Hatch and he can start clawing points back again. Um, he was on pole, we shouldn't forget, for the... Uh, Brian Hatch indie round earlier in the season, um, which of course is no guarantee necessarily that you'll be also as quick on the Grand Prix circuit as you are on the indie circuit because they're very different layouts. Um, mm -hmm. But um, Bradley Ray has still shown decent pace at rounds this season. Of course, he was on pole at Snetterton, and had he not thrown it at the scenery twice, he probably would have been on the podium twice at Snetterton. Um, Knockhill, of course, the Kawasaki's always tend to go very, very well there. Um, Bradley Ray. We, we sometimes forget just how young and inexperienced he is, but um, so for him to have a little bit of a lean spell and a bit of a, a bit of a dip midway through the season, perhaps we shouldn't necessarily be too surprised by. Um, but I still struggle to see any reason why Bradley Ray cannot kick on again. I mean, those performances at the start of the season were so good, and there have still been signs of pace since then, even if the results not necessarily match it. Um, and Bradley Ray, let's not forget, was also brilliant in his World Superbike outing. Um, at Donington yeah. on that Suzuki. So, for Bradley Ray, I think that's a good sign, isn't it, that he's continuing to display a very positive outset and a very positive outlook on things because many, many riders of his age and of his relative lack of experience will be throwing things around the garage around this point when things aren't going his way. But the kid still seems to have a very level head on his shoulders. He does. He's very mature for his age. He's, yeah, he's not beating himself up over it. He knows that sometimes shit's just going to happen in a, in a race and, you know, it's just... You know, there's, there's not much you can really do about that. But the way he's riding right now, it's not like his pace is terrible. He can hold on to the fact his pace has genuinely been very good. It's just 
a couple of silly mistakes here and there, a couple of unfortunate circumstances has not really shown uh, Bradley's progress in, in the scoreboard as much as it has with the eye test. So, yeah, the way he's riding right now, I don't think he's got too, you don't, I don't think he's got too much reason to be despondent. He is most likely going to make the showdown comfortably. Um, he's got race wins. He's had podium finishes. He's doing very well where that's concerned. Um, I don't think he's got too much to worry about going forward. He's just got. I think he's just got to screw his head back on, keep a level head, and I think and results. I think will come. Yeah, because um, I'm, I'm just looking back at his results through last year, and he. I mean, obviously, he got gradually better and better as the year went on. But there were rounds like Silverstone. He was um, sixth. He was sixth twice and seventh, which at that stage of his career, at that stage of last season, was a great result. Um, of course, he had that brilliant podium at Alton Park, um, where he very nearly won there. Uh, of course, Alton Park will be a showdown round this year. Um, so there are rounds coming up, which Bradley Ray uh, and that Suzuki, because of course Suzuki won at Aston, didn't they, um, late last year with, with Gintoli. Um, so there are rounds to come where both Bradley Ray and Suzuki will definitely be targeting and thinking we will go well there and we will um, have our day again. Um, so I still think there's plenty to be uh, positive about for Bradley Ray, even though he's having a bit of a lean spell at the moment. Um, one rider who we have to mention from last weekend, who's also now ingrained himself in the showdown six at the moment, um, is Danny Buchan. Now, there's always a rider, Trey, in a British Superbike season who we kind of sleep on. Who we're all, we, all, we talk about. I mean, it's such a deep and um, stacked field that there's always going to be one rider that catches you off guard um, that you perhaps see you see getting into the showdown that you weren't necessarily expecting. Uh, the breakout star, if you want to term it that way. Last year, you can argue it was Dixon um, who came out of nowhere to get in the showdown. Hickman kind of did a similar job, kind of getting into the showdown when... Um, very few people expected him to do so. Um, go back to 2016, and we had Luke Mossy who emerged as a real threat and got into the showdown. There's always yeah. one rider who kind of breaks out of the pack and does it. You can argue Bradley Ray is already doing that this season, but it seems as if Danny Buchan's going to be another. Only three men in in the in British Superbikes this year have scored points in every single round. Leon Haslam is one of actually only two guys. Leon Haslam is one. And is the other one, um, and Danny, yeah, a pair Danny of Buchan, co- prior, it's worth pointing out. Danny Buchan prior to this year, when he returned back into BSB, um, having had a previous stint in this class, had a reputation of being a bit of a crasher. Yeah, and yeah, he's now Mr. Consistency. He's only, he's only the second guy in the championship that's scored points at every single round this season. Um, and it's amazing that a guy that doesn't even have a Wikipedia page at the moment yes. is riding so yeah. well. Um, which, I, which I find hilarious, by the way. Um, but yeah, yeah Danny Buchan... He's a stock thousand champion. It's not like he's not achieved anything. Right, exactly. And yet here we are. Um, yeah, Danny Buchan has ridden very pretty much all season long. And yeah, he's now like you know, becoming like breakout star of the year in the category. Brilliant rides again at Knock. He'll look very fast. He was setting lap records for fun, especially in race one. He had, I think, more pace in him than any other rider in there. Just didn't really have the opportunities to be able to pass people um, on a regular basis. Um, just rode very, very well indeed. Um, you know, could have easily had a second in the race one. It was taken off him due to a time penalty uh, because he, well, he did indeed pass under yellow flag conditions um, when he, he did not give Haslam the place back. Um, but, you know, still only only a one-place drop, finished in third. But again, third again in, um, in race two as well. Um, very, very impressive uh, performances both times around. Again, it's not, it's not a fluke. He, he was in the top five in both races at Snetterton as well. It's no coincidence. He's 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 riding very, very well. And 
yeah, he he could easily be um, the re- real breakout star of the 2018 season. Again, as you mentioned, we've seen guys like do that before, like Dixon and Mossy even the before, and the way it's going, Bucking could be that guy who's now in a showdown spot outright, having overtaken Josh Brooks this weekend. Absolutely, he's doing a brilliant, brilliant job this season. He's he's a net fifth in the championship with Shaky Buzz still in there at the moment, in, in fifth on 98 points, three ahead of Bucking. Um, but if you if you take Shaky Burn out of it, and obviously naturally as the season goes on, he's going to tumble out anyway of this top six and, and out of the picture completely. Um, but if you discount it completely, Bucking would be fifth on 95, Edda Brooks sixth on 80, and Michael Laverty would be seventh, the first rider outside the showdown, uh, both he and Christian Iden on 67 points. So Bucking would have a 28-point buffer um, on the first of the non-showdown riders. Um, which is which is a hefty margin to have in your in your pocket when you're it's essentially doing in many ways, Dre, what Hickman did last year, and that's scoring points regularly and just just continue to churn out these points finishes with the odd podium mixed in. He had a fourth earlier this season back at Donington in race two as well. Um, he had a couple of fifths at Snetterton, so he's he's dealing in predominantly top eight results, um, which is how Hickman got in last year. Um, and Bucking might well be following that very same formula to get into the showdown spots. Um, at the moment. Um, the other riders that are currently in the showdown spots, because we've covered Haslam, Dixon and Ray, um, and Byrne is currently in there but won't be as the season goes on. The other one is his teammate, Glenn Irwin, the other rider in the showdown six who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. Um, mm. uh, at BYZ Ducati. Um, who got a couple of fourth place finishes and uh, I continue to say this week on week, he's he's kind of proving to BYZ Ducati that there is life after Shaky Byrne um, and that he can lead this team at the moment. Um, because when you consider that historically Knockhill is perhaps the prime Kawasaki circuit on the calendar uh, in, in BSB and the Kawasaki's were one, two, three in both races, fourth was about as good as anyone else could hope for. And fourth was what Glen Owen achieved on both Saturday, on both of Sunday's races. Indeed. Glenn rode very well. Again, again, he's proven that he's going to be just in the top, top five now pretty much every weekend. If, um, if nothing happens in terms of shenanigans on on track and whatnot, or anything mechanical, um, this is no longer a surprise anymore. He is now right up there, um, you know, with really really strong results. Um, he's going to be in the showdown for me, no question. And again, I said he's he's riding very very well, and yeah, he's becoming a real consistent top tier dude now. Exactly what B Wiser was hoping for, especially now with shaky how he is. They need a team leader, and Glenn Owen is the leading Ducati right now, comfortably ahead of anybody else. He's doing a very good job on that bike, and yeah, he's he's, he's putting the Ducati team where they need to be. Hmm. Right. So without without considering Shaky Burn in this championship picture, sixth is essentially Josh Brooks uh, on eighty points. Now Brooks had a he and McCam has had a bit of a poor weekend of it um, last time out at, at Knock Hill. Uh, only eighth in race one and then a mechanical in race two when he was not going to finish much higher than he had in race one, let's face it. Um, mm. he, so he's on 80 points, essentially a net sixth. 13 points ahead of Eden and Laverty on the Tyco BMs who were um, kind of frustrated that they could do no better than sixth and seventh and fifth and sixth between them um, in the two races. They would have been sixth and seventh in both races had Brad Ray's problem not promoted them up spot uh, in race mm. two. Um the Hondas are close behind as well. O'Halloran is 10th on 63. Dan Linfort, though, had a dreadful weekend. He uh, went off in race one and then finished 13th in race two. Uh, so he's down on 45 points. So he's got 35 to make up to get into the top six as it stands. Um, these are two teams who, at the start of the season, would have both had designs of getting at least a rider in the showdown. And they're both at risk at the moment of, of failing to make it for very, very different reasons. 
Yeah, it's 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 difficult. I mean, the midfield right now is so close. Again, Shaky's ninety eight points will not hold up. I have no question about that. You need about one hundred and sixty to realistically make the showdown. Um, and I think it actually could be a little bit less than that by the time we get to the end of the season because Haslam is so dominant right now. The big points aren't getting distributed like they normally were. So I think it could be down to maybe 140 might be enough to get you over the line this time around if my numbers are about right. But yeah, there's like they're, they're struggling right now. Like in terms of, and it's hard to be consistent when the bike you're on is so temperamental, um, which is what you know the situation is at McCams for certainly. I mean, we've heard this story before. I mean, look at Ellison from last season. But they're just not racking up any sort of results to make them think, yeah, this guy's going to get in. Like right now, Haslam is is almost almost Haslam is in, in my opinion. Yeah, Dixon is probably yeah. Haslam mathematically is more or less in. Dixon is pretty much in. Bradley and Ray, I think will will make it no problem. Glenn Irwin, I think will make it no problem. Besides that, you're looking at probably Bucken, Brooks, Eden, Laverty, O'Halloran, knowing what O'Halloran is like. Hickman and Ellison, and hey, maybe even Richard Cooper fighting out for maybe two spots. Um, so it could be eight or nine guys in contention, and it could be one Buccaneer Ken where where you're on the podium twice um, that might make the difference. I think Brooks will get there. I think the, I think the potential with Brooks on the R1 is there. I think he'll make it in. Everybody else, I have no idea at the mm, moment. Yeah, it's anyone's, and, and Brooks is the kind of guy that. All he has to do is make the showdown, and you just simply cannot write him off because he's Josh yep. Brooks. You just you just exactly. can't write him. You take a fool to write him off in the showdown. Um, just once he's in, he could win the whole thing. Um, the, the 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 surprise to me last weekend was the Hondas, um, who started the season well. Um, obviously, we saw Linfoot on the podium in the season. He then returned from his injuries and got a fourth at Snetterton, um, and just they were nowhere last weekend. I mean, Linfoot wasn't really on course for a great result when he ran off in race one anyway, and then he finished 13th in race two. And uh, do you know what, Dre? I really feel for Jason O'Halloran um, because he he, he he hasn't actually missed a round this season. He's, you know, in terms right. of he, he's turned up at every round. He has had a couple of DNSs this year. Um, and even though he hasn't missed a round, I really, really fear that that one World Superbike outing at Imola is going to cost him a showdown spot this year because he broke his ankle pretty badly there. And he's still suffering uh, through that, through the injury ankle, of course, because he, he got knocked about in that turn two crash at Snetterton with Andy Irwin that caused him to miss race two there. And um, by all accounts, as MCN points out, um, 30 laps as they, this is direct quote from MCN, 30 laps of the physical circuit on race, they proved too much, which basically meant that O'Halloran through that missed race two. Um, you know, that injury, I mean, how long was Imola, Dre? That was back in May, wasn't it? So we're talking six weeks ago yeah. now uh, that that happened. But it's clear that that huge accident, that huge high side and the bad injuries that he suffered are still affecting O'Halloran even now. And it's putting his showdown spot at risk. Yeah, it absolutely is. I think it, it, it sucks that O'Halloran's, you know, brilliant opportunity um to be able to get up to get to, to get up the board like that and to get to get a chance with Walti Bucks with Honda and you know basically be very impressive but ultimately obviously have that awful accident that ruined his leg and ankle. Um and he hasn't it's done superbike points since. Yeah, it, it seems to have done him more harm than good because like okay, we all often praise how superhuman bike riders are and you know how their their pain tolerance and 
and you know them dealing with injuries really quickly then recovering from, from things like broken legs in, in a matter of weeks rather than months or an average person would be in would be on crutches for a couple of months um <laughs> the problem is is, is that the, the, these guys are still banged up i know halloran is banged up he's He's gone through that awful broken ankle recuperation. He's now he he he, he probably hurt it again, most likely when Andy Irwin took him out at Snetterton. And yeah, I reckon he's still nowhere near a hundred percent. It's obvious he's nowhere near a hundred percent still. And that was six weeks ago. Um, so yeah, the way it's going right now, um, Ahern's in serious trouble. He is in serious trouble. He's on sixty-three points and. And the showdowns, I mean, the, the, right now, the showdown mark really is Brooks on 80. And it's going to be hard to outpoint Brooks consistently because he is mm. really good on that Yamaha and the Honda needs to be on point to realistically challenge that. And I think those two are very close in terms of factory ability at the moment. So it's it's not going to be easy for him um, right now. And again, there's, there's a real shame that a brilliant opportunity like being able to to race for Red Bull Honda in the World, in the, in the World Superbike Series has ultimately been like the ruiner of O'Halloran's season, where a guy who normally makes the showdown comfortably. Yeah, it is a real shame. He was actually further back than that. He was it was May the 12th he had that injury. So as we stand here today, it was exactly two months ago uh, that, that Jason O'Halloran suffered that injury. And it's one of those horrible situations where hindsight being such a wonderful thing, he hasn't scored a point in either of the two British Superbike rounds he turned up at. So with hindsight being 2020. He could easily, he could have just stayed at home and rested up and re- truly, re- truly recuperated and not be any further, any worse off in the championship than he is anyway. Um, which is, again, speaking with the benefit of hindsight, because of course, any superbike rider, any motorcycle racer, being the way they are, they're going to give it a go because points mean everything. And they're going to try and go out and race and do what they can. And um, unfortunately for Halloran, it's not worked out for him. And um, we hope that he can um, turn up at Brands Hatch for the next round um, in As We Speak. Uh, a week and a half's time they they race again um not this weekend but next weekend the 21st and 2nd of july um on the gp layout let's hope that there's um better news for honda and that halloran has been able to rest up a bit and be back on mm. form for there he's by no means out of it he's by no means out of the showdown spots at all because there are still uh, as i mentioned earlier nine races to go before we decide the six championship challenges at the end of the season so Nine races is plenty of time for Halloran to make up a 32-point deficit to Buchan and, what, 17 points to Brooks. Um, but he needs to get himself fully fit first before he has any hope um, of doing that. Um, let's take you to the results then from last weekend um, at Knock Hill. Race one went to Dixon from Haslam and Buchan. Um, Irwin in fourth for BYZ. That's Dad Glenn Irwin, of course, because there are Irwins on both BYZ and Ducatis. Uh, Brad Ray fifth. Michael Laverty sixth ahead of Iden and Brooks. Uh, Richard Cooper 9th and Peter Aikman 10th ahead of the aforementioned Andy Irwin in 11th um, Luke Mossy remember him uh, he was 12th um, ahead of James Ellison in 13th remember him um, Taz McKenzie 14th on the second of the McCams bikes shout out to his brother Taylor by the way who um, parted company with the Motor Rapido Ducati team last weekend as well um, a shame to see that relationship coming to an end um, the final point in race one went to Mason Law ahead of O'Halloran. Um, race two went to Haslam from Dixon and Buchan with Irwin fourth again, um, with Laverty and Eden promoted up to fifth and sixth by Bradley Ray's misfortune. Richard Cooper seventh on the sole remaining uh, bill-based Suzuki. Uh, Andy Irwin eighth, James Ellison ninth, and Pete Aikman tenth once again. He's another rider who's underperforming uh, this season. Um, the rest of the points handed out to Taz McKenzie, Mossy, Limfoot, Law, and Gino Rea. Um, he took the final point in 15th position. 
championship standings uh, led by Haslam. He is 74 clear of Jake Dixon in second. More importantly, though, in podium credits, he is 20 ahead of the RAF regular and reserves Kawasaki rider uh, in second. Bradley Ray is third on 112 points, which is not enough yet to get him in the showdown. Um, but when we're comparing him to the uh, next rider outside of it, which is effectively Christian Iden, Bradley Ray still has 45 points in hand. Uh, Glenn Irwin is fourth overall ahead of Shaky Byrne, but we're going to discount him. So fifth would be Danny Buchan and sixth Josh Brooks. Um, with the riders just outside the showdown spots, Iden, Laverty, O'Halloran and Hickman rounding out the top 10 in the championship. Next round of the British Superbike Championship is, as I mentioned, the Brands Hatch GP circuit. Uh, the first of two rounds round that layout. Of course, the next of them being the final round of the season in October. Um, Brands Hatch GP hosts the next round uh, on the 22nd of July. Right, we've not got a lot of time left uh, on Bike Live before we bid you farewell for this week. But um, let's briefly look ahead to this weekend um, because it is the German Grand Prix at the Saxon Ring. Um, and uh, Dre, of course, is a bookie. I don't, I like the occasional bet, uh, it's fair to say. But if uh, anyone was preparing to bet this weekend, and I'm not talking about those people using the bleedingmotorsport.com app that they've just launched, um, they're, they're probably going to be betting on 93, Dre. Um, mother's mortgage, put it down. Um, yes, uh, yeah, I, I, I would say so. Remortgage the house, it's probably going to Mark as you, as you probably are. Listeners. He has won eight years in a row in all three classes. This is the Marquez track, all from pole position, all, the other, all from pole position as well. <laughs> he is he is virtually unstoppable around here. Um, he's beaten every rider you can think of around here. Polar Spagro in his Moto three days, Stefan Bradl in the Moto two days. His own teammate in Pedrosi was also, to be fair, a pretty good rider around here um, on, on on that sort of level. Um, yeah, it's been a who's who of, of um, guys he's destroyed around there because Marquez grew up you know, around around you know, dirt track racing after all these years. Um, he's so good at any track that's got a plethora of left-handers, and that's exactly what the Saxon ring is. It's got about 18 um, in a row. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a rare case of a clockwise track that goes back on itself. Um, it's very weird in that sense, but... Uh, yeah, that, that's why Marquez is such a genius around here, and yeah, he's he's there's no reason to believe he won't take win number nine around here this 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 weekend. He is again, I said, virtually unstoppable around here. He's just so good. Yeah, he is. He's he's incredible around the Saxon ring. Um, so with that in mind, um, we're, we're gonna rather than preview this weekend and tell you what you probably all know is gonna happen. Um, not that it's gonna be not entertaining this weekend because MotoGP. Um, often is, and last even last year we saw that great battle between Marquez and Jonas Folger, didn't we, um, in the Grand Prix last year, and um, because Moto2 and Moto3 are both having very, very close championship battles at the moment, uh, with Bagnaia leading Oliveira in Moto2, and Martin leading Bezecchi in Moto3. Um, the main story, really, other than the obvious story of Danny Pedrosa announcing his upcoming retirement in MotoGP, does actually surround the German Grand Prix Dre, uh, and the future mm. of it. Now, the German Grand Prix is not going anywhere um, in, in MotoGP. And I think, I'd, I think I mentioned this a few shows back when they announced that the... Oh, no, it wasn't. It was about the French Grand Prix um, when they mm. said that the, that the the Grand Prix was staying, but they weren't announcing which circuit it was staying at. Um, right. Now, the German Grand Prix is not going anywhere. It's staying in the MotoGP um, calendar because it is a very popular round. Um, but it doesn't appear, Dre, as if it's going to be staying at the Saxon Ring. It looks like they're going to the Nürburgring next year. Um, 
I'm in two minds about this. Um, Ring, which is a I, former famous world superbike venue. Yes. Um, now, here's the thing. Um, the Saxon Ring, it's not the best track for entertainment. I'm not denying this. It's hard to pass. It's hard to stand out around there. Um, you, you do get, you know, you, you do get some good fights every once in a while there, but it's a track that isn't the most entertainment friendly. Um, but on the other side of the coin, it's very popular and it sells out every single year. You will get 80,000 in there on race day. No question. It's a good point um, that, actually, because it, like I, when I say it sells out, and I mentioned that a minute ago, that it's a very popular round and obviously the German Grand Prix is going, not going anywhere, but because it's a popular round, it's no guarantee that all of those spectators are going to automatically migrate to the Nürburgring because a lot of the reason yeah. why the Saxon Ring is so successful and so popular is because of it's the it's because it's the Saxon Ring and because of where it is. It's a naturally popular venue. Yeah, it's a great venue. People will make the trip out. It's 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 a very popular round. Like I said, it sells out every every race weekend. It's one of those tracks that you will get full capacity guaranteed. The Nürburgring is a bigger facility. It holds 130,000, if I'm not mistaken. But it's in a different part of Germany, and it's in car racing land. Let's be real here. The Nürburgring has been a car venue for a plethora of motorsport series for quite some time. It used to be Formula 1, and it used to go back and forth with Hockenheim, which Formula 1 is going to next weekend. Also, endurance racing, also DTM um it's hard to sell out i think it's, it's easy to sell out there but the track doesn't make money that's the problem they they, they they've had many ownership problems over the last few years in the nurburgring um it's nice that mono gp want to keep a german around that's i think that's very important i think they're an underappreciated part of the bike racing world um but i'm not convinced you're going to sell out the nurburgring with MotoGP, because it's not the Saxon ring. That's a risky game that MotoGP are playing. I don't know why they're so keen to leave the Saxon ring. It's a great track. It's a great track for popularity's sake. Okay, it may not be the best for competitive balance because it's been a Honda track for years. But in terms of a pure, you know, I'm going to make money off this round weekend, you can't beat the Saxon ring for that. Not in Germany, anyway. I... David Emmett made a very good point about this earlier this afternoon. Them being so close to a bunch of other rounds, like the Red Bull Ring in Austria, for example, and, you know, an upcoming race in Finland next year, the, 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 the Kaimi Ring, you're going to make fans pick and choose, and that's never a good sign. If, 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 you're, if you're going to have three or four rounds that are really close to each other, people aren't going to be able to afford to go to three or four rounds in a row like that. They're going to pick one and they're going to go with it. And I honestly think that Austria might be a better Grand Prix venue. I know many people that have gone to the Red Bull ring in Spielberg and they have loved it. It's a fantastic venue. Um, you know, English speaking, a lot of people around there speak English and, you know, it's given it's got a bumper full of Red Bull money being thrown at it as well. It's bound to put on a good show. Um, so with all that in mind, I'm not convinced um, that going going to the Nurburgring is a better move for the. But hey, maybe uh, maybe Esperalta knows something that I don't. Mm. Yeah, I mean, from a from a business standpoint, uh, Dre's covered it pretty well. What what this could mean for 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 MotoGP in Germany. Um, from from a racing point of view, and in terms of what a what kind of circuit it would be for bikes, which many people maybe will be thinking of, Henry Chapman was asking us this on on the Discord server earlier today. Um, it, I think it's a circuit that could produce good motorcycle racing. It's a circuit that 
as I mentioned, was a, a famous World Superbike venue in the past. Um, many World Superbike viewers of a certain age and many who've searched it before on YouTube will remember the infamous incident at the Nürburgring back in the uh, the late 90s when about a, half the field went off on oil at Turn 1 um, and Colin Edwards was there pleading with everyone to put the oil flags out because everyone was going off at Turn 1 on oil. Um, and and that would be my next point. My big issue with the Nürburgring with, with uh, regards to motorcycle race, safety. Um, for a couple of reasons. First yes. of all, I'm not sure runoff is particularly uh, great at certain parts of the circuit. Um, and that would lead me to an incident that happened one of the last times World Superbike raced there. It last raced there um, in uh, 2013. Um, if you want a nice piece of trivia, and of course I would say this, it was the venue where Tom Sykes took his first ever World Superbike win. Um, now it was now in 2013, it was in monsoonical rain as well. Uh, but in 2013, we saw a race that very nearly ended Jonathan Ray's career. Um, it did end his season. Um, we had an incident in race two there, um, excuse me, race one there, um, where a rider, I forget which rider it was, a rider blew up um, and dropped oil down. I think it was Loris Baz. Um, but, I, but I don't know that for a fact. But basically, a rider dropped oil down. Not his fault. Bike blew up. Oil on the circuit. No oil flags out. No marshals put any oil flags out. And a bunch of riders plowed into... This was at the Michael Schumacher S's. Remember the corner that Lewis Hamilton plowed into in his rookie F1 season in qualifying? Yes. It's that corner. Um, mm. It's that corner. And Jonathan Ray went straight off on oil. No choice, chance of slowing down. Went plowing into the barriers. Broke his leg. Didn't race again that season. Um, and it was, as uh, I think I described it, and many people described it as a disgrace at the time, um, that no one did anything about it. Mo I don't know whether it whether it's different marshals that go there for motorcycle racing than they would for car racing. I would assume that's the case, because I'm pretty sure that's the case in in, uh, in this country, where, of course, you have MSA marshals and you have marshals that go to the motorcycle venues. Um, so whether that's just purely a marshalling issue or not, I'm not sure. And obviously, World Superbikes hasn't raced there itself. Uh, since 2013, which was five years ago, but I still worry about parts of that circuit, Dre, because let's be fair, um, MotoGP in the last couple of years has had a history of going to circuits that have a predominantly Formula One-backed history, like the Red Bull Ring, and, uh -huh. and, and gone there, even though the circuit is much more geared to cars and doesn't necessarily have the same level of runoff and safety that it should for bikes. And that's my worry about the Nürburgring. Uh, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there. Yeah, yeah I, 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 that does worry me. Um, the fact that, yeah, the Red Bull Ring is the prime example. Let's not forget, just a year ago, several riders were considering not riding there if it was wet. Mark Marquez included, who was in the middle of a championship fight was considering not racing that weekend, including Alicia Spagaro, including Jonas Volga, including Cal Crutchlow, because they all pointed out that there was basically very little runoff due to you know, wet tarmac and sliding bodies and bikes into turns one, two, and three, which all had heavy braking zones. Um, it could be a similar case here at the Nürburgring. They're going to one track, and... Yeah, people are going to pick fights about this because the MotoGP community and the F1 community don't get along because they have different needs for their circuits. Um, we saw it with Lewis Hamilton talking about Catalina getting repaved, said the track lost its character. We heard, we heard that at Silverstone, you know, Carlos Sainz openly said after the British Grand Prix this weekend, he, he said he felt sorry for the MotoGP guys 
racing there in September because of all the bumps that were on the track this year. And they were the ones um, that asked for it to be resurfaced. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's why they resurfaced great. it, to make it easier for the MotoGP. Yeah, it's amazing that. And Carlos is coming out and saying, I feel sorry for the biking dudes. Oh, Carlos Sainz is a worse. good boy. Yeah, Carlos Sainz is a good boy. He's, you know, now, he's, now he owns a pub to become a good um, <laughs> He gets it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's not ideal for everybody because obviously different... I mean, I remember the very first show we ever did on Downforce Radio. We talked about Monza getting changed and the fact that Monza, which was still a world superbike round at the time, um, had the Parabolica and the instant gravel trap that was on the outside. Um, it was tarmacked over and all the F1 dudes complained. And I had to put it out there on Twitter to say... Guys, it's for the bikes. It's not for the F1 cars. Like, in terms of biking, having an immediate gravel trap which will flip people and bikes over is extremely dangerous. Um, so, yeah, it, it's that conflicting nature of what F1 needs and what four-wheel driver safety needs and what two-wheel driver safety needs. And that can often be very different. Um, depending on the category of racing, and when you have that going on, you're go you're not going to be able to please both sides of the equation. And it seems that MotoGP is trying to ride that line by going to these more marketable mm. um, tracks with an F1 pedigree around them. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that rider in taken on board because again they have no problem going to the red bull ring they have no problem taking all that red bull money on but then the riders are pissed off because their health is legitimately at risk yeah, and the thing is i would love to sit here and say well uh, let's not worry because of course dawna and, and most gp will have thought of this but they've mm-hmm. proven they've proven with the red bull ring that they didn't necessarily think of it did they um so so that's my concern i hope motor gp is very careful if he goes to the red ring that the circuit is is safe enough um and that the marshalling's up to scratch because um, it certainly wasn't when World Superbikes went there. Um, but but yeah, the, as far as most GP in Germany is concerned, because it's clear that the demand is always going to be there for a German Grand Prix, um, really, there aren't any other circuits they could go to other than the two that we've discussed, because Hockenheim would never work for bikes because there's nowhere near enough room. Um, no the, the circuit's too narrow and there are concrete walls way too close. That would never work. The lousy ring wouldn't work, A, because it's shite, and B, because they've just closed it and made it a test-only facility. Um, the, circuit that hosted World Super- the, the circuit that hosted World Superbikes until last year. The German Rockingham, as I call it. Um, yes. but, um, but, but yeah, other than that, there are no circuits that we can think of that would be able to host motorcycle world-class racing. I mean, there are only two German circuits that we know of that could host Formula One at all. That's the Nürburgring and Hockenheim. Um, mm-hmm. So... Um, so Despite being a circuit, a country, sorry, rich in in automotive history and Grand Prix car racing and bike racing history, it's not exactly well laden with circuits that could host either, um, for a variety of reasons, funding as well, and um, just general infrastructure being one of them. So, so we'll follow this story and see if anything does develop from this. Whether MotoGP does switch from the Saxon Ring to the Nurburgring um, this uh, from the end of this season onwards, and whether it is indeed going to bring Mark Marquez's ongoing German Grand Prix streak to an end. Mm. Uh, perhaps that's the best hope of snapping Marquez's streak in Germany, moving circuits. Um, whatever happens uh, at this weekend's German Grand Prix, which absolutely will be at the Saxon Ring, um, we will review it next week on episode 69. Nice. Of Bike Live uh, on Motorsport 101. <laughs> Um, we would love to dedicate it to Nicky Hayden as well, but uh, uh, yeah, we will um, we will definitely be uh, covering what happens at the Saxon Ring. 
uh, and MotoGP uh, this weekend. Um, between now and then, when you next hear from us uh, here on Bike Live for episode 69, we have quite possibly two episodes. In fact, almost certainly two episodes of Motorsport mm. 101. Uh, episode 151, um, which will focus on uh, IndyCar, which we're in action this weekend, and as well, Dre, uh, Formula E, which is in NYC. Yeah, Formula E in New York City, the season finale doubleheader in New York. Um, let's just say the championship isn't completely dead just yet. John Eric Vern lost a chunk of points um, in Switzerland last time out, meaning Sam Bird, I think, is 22 points behind John Eric Vern in the battle for the championship. So with two races in New York on Saturday and on Sunday, um, it's all to play for between those two. So we, we will have the fourth different Formula E champion in the first four seasons of its inception. The question is, is it is it coming to France or is it coming back home to Sam Bird? No, home. let's <laughs> let's let's go, Bird. Let's let's go, Bird. No, the bird's the word. Yeah, like give Britain the reason to smile again, Sam Bird. For God's sake. Um, so yeah, the Formula E season for if you haven't seen it already, it'll be on at 8 p.m. on Saturday and 7:30 p.m. on Sunday, both on Five Spike. Fortunately, not on Channel Five proper, gits. But um, yes, it's on the feed of the channel Five Spike. So if you haven't seen it already, both races that weekend will be on there for you British listeners out there. That'll be an episode 151 alongside a review of IndyCar's next round at Toronto. Big hype for the hometown boys at SPM, which is they're now basically naming themselves Team Eh. Um, very Canadian, shall, shall we say, of SPM there with James Hinchcliffe and Robert Wickens looking to win on home turf in Canada. So keep half an eye on that as well. Big championship potential implications there as it's been bunching a little bit now with Dixon having quite a bad day in Iowa. So, uh, well, by his standards anyway. But uh, yeah, the, the after Iowa, we're heading to Toronto for that round as well. That'll both be an episode 151. But... Beforehand, yes, well, there'll we be episode one out because we, yeah, mm-hmm. we, we it, it's a big one next week. We, we, we like our milestones here, and it is yes. episode one hundred and fifty uh, of Motorsport one hundred and one. Um, how the fuck have we got this far? Uh, episode, <laughs> episode, right. episode one hundred and fifty. Um, I, I think I've edited about between this and Bite Live, I think I've edited over two hundred shows now. Uh, I think it is something like that. Yeah, we we, we crossed 200 with the Keenan show, didn't we? Um, And this one, this one, I have to say, is going to be one of the most fun to put together. Uh, Dre, tell the listeners why. Yeah, I feel like we're now at such a level that we can have a clip show. Um, (laughs) We're going to put in next to no effort on this, and we're going to have a clip show of your favourite moments of Motorsport 101 over the past 149 episodes. May the good Lord help us all. As this goes out, you probably still have a little bit of time left to submit your segment ideas. Now, if you want a segment that you've particularly enjoyed in our 149 episode history um to feature in episode 150 let me know on twitter at harrison 101 hd or let lewis know who's probably going to edit this damn thing poor guy um at lewis underby 23 on twitter or at at motorsport underscore 101 you'll you'll find us either way indeed we both we both operate that twitter anyway so we'll we'll find it one way or another but um if you, you still have a little bit of time left to submit your favorite segments in the show's history. Remember, they don't necessarily have to be comedic. Um, mm. Some of our famous moments, some of our most favorite moments has been when I've wanted to strangle King. It, it happens every once in a while. Like, shout out to Kevin Rochi suggested the fight, and I said to him, we're trying to keep it under four hours. Mm. Um, so um, if you have any particularly favorite segment 
that you want to send in, let me know. And if you, it would really help if you sent in the episode title as well. It makes us having to find it a million times easier. To be fair, most of the ones you've suggested so far are already on our YouTube page, which is very easy indeed. So thanks a bunch for that, you guys. Really appreciate it, making our lives a little bit easier on this one. But if you've got a, a favorite segment that you've always wanted on, on, on you know, from Motorsport 101 to feature in this Monsard special, let us know. Again, at Motorsport 1 underscore 101 on Twitter or our personal handles at Harrison101HD and at LewisSutterby23. That'll be up probably in the middle of next week. It will probably be a doubleheader week. Episode 101, as mentioned, the IndyCar season finale, uh, the Formula E, I should say, season finale at New York, the doubleheader there, and IndyCar in Toronto. So, yeah, a lot to look forward to on Motorsport 101 next week. Yeah, uh, and as I mentioned, episode 69 of uh, Bike Life here on Motorsport 101, uh, reviewing the German Grand Prix as Marc Marquez goes for nine in a row um, in Germany. But this brings us to the end of episode 68. Uh, a bike live from Motorsport 101 as we say, uh, prepare to say sayonara to the samurai um, but unfortunately um, we've also had to say a very very sad farewell um, elsewhere this week and we leave you um, with uh, our thoughts and our prayers to the family and friends of William Dunlop who passed away last weekend at the Scaries 100 road races uh, we dedicate this show to his memory and as I mentioned, our thoughts and prayers go out to all affected by this tragedy. We will see you next week.